0: kid in the 80s and 90s, the two albums that defined the artist known as Prince for me were 1984's Purple Rain and 1989's soundtrack to Batman. These two albums were electrified with pop energy that set me in motion, but they also had strong visual components in films that they were attached to, which helped cement them in my young mind. I've spoken before that it wasn't until 1999 the actual year, not the song, that I dove into Prince and started exploring more of his catalog, first by immersing myself in the triple-disc collection of the hits and the B-sides, and then pursuing the songs that I liked back to their source albums, full of undiscovered treasures in deep cuts. But prior to that, going back to the 80s and 90s, there was this third Prince thing. It wasn't an album... I mean, it, it, well, it was, but that's not how I thought of it, because it was a movie, except it wasn't. It was like a concert, but it also wasn't. The concert video for Sign of the Times, based on Prince's double album from 1987, looked to young Ryan like someone had filmed a stage play starring Prince and his band. There were weird interludes, urban street noise, bits of dialogue with the dancers, costume changes... By the way, I never would have seen the movie, except the fast-forward button on our remote control was broken, and we had Sign of the Times taped on the same brown box VHS tape as the Coen Brothers Raising Arizona that I was trying to watch. So, with the notable exception of I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man, which slapped me in the face with its awesomeness and remains to this day my favorite Prince song, With that exception, I didn't get Sign of the Times. This assortment of songs didn't feel as accessible as Little Red Corvette, When Doves Cry, or Trust. I tried a decade later when I bought the album for myself and took it with me to college with the other Prince albums that I had. But it was still an odd assortment of material that, even at age 20, I'm not sure I was ready for. A 2017 review by John McKee, celebrating the 30th anniversary of the album, calls Sign of the Times a masterpiece encompassing all of Prince's musical personas. Bedroom balladeer, penitent Christian, one-track-minded lover man, modern-day bassy style band leader, whimsical storyteller, meticulous orchestrator, guitar-wielding axeman, and pop craftsman. That was a lot for me to take in on the first listen, to say nothing of the dueling vocal stylings of Prince and his alter ego Camille. But earlier this year, September 25th, 2020, Sign of the Times was re-released as a nine-disc super deluxe version featuring remasters of the original LPs, along with the maxi singles and b-sides, 45 previously unreleased studio tracks and cuts, a live concert across two discs, and another live concert on DVD and a reissue this momentous for an album that many critics consider Prince's greatest work and a testament to his artistic genius, well, this deserves a discussion. Hello, and welcome back to a funky, sexy, soulful episode of Fire (coughs) & Water Records, the music anthology show of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and joining me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, the purple trench coat to my assless pants, my brother, Neil Daly. What's up, Neil? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, oh man. That's one hell of an intro. I was all set to start talking about the Bulls and Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant's recent beef, but I think, wow, you just... Okay, let's just go with this. Let's do, let's do Prince again.
0: We'll earmark time for that later. <laughs> nice. And also joining us for this episode, the blue sky and white cloud suit to my third-eye sunglasses, <laughs> our our buddy Chris Sagunas.
2: What's up, Chris? Oh, hey, what's going on, guys? And you know what? I was sitting here... <laughs> eagerly anticipating what outfit I would get. And I approve. Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) All right, guys, what were your first impressions of sign of the times? Neil, I I think I know your answer already, because we did talk about it when we did a Prince tribute back in 2017, uh, on the one year anniversary of his of his death. Back then, you said you thought this was his best album. Do you still think that?
1: Absolutely, absolutely, without a doubt. As a matter of fact, I think it's... I I read the same article you referenced, too, which kind of brought me back, because... Here's the weird thing about this album, and I'm not going to go too much into stuff that I... I'm not going to rehash a whole lot of stuff that we talked about in a prior podcast, but your initial assessment of it is actually fairly accurate, even though that this is my favorite album or collection of prints. I think it is kind of a little bit less accessible than 1999 or Purple Rain, you know, or even all around the world in the day to a certain extent. Um, this one took a lot of digestion, if that makes any sense, um, for me to really get into it. So it's not like when I first listened to it, when I first got the two disc or no, two albums, two, the two LP set um, as a kid... I don't think it in, immediately floored me as this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. I think it took time to develop that. But even after we did that podcast a couple of years ago, and it, it, this is where it registered, it narrowly edged out Purple Rain as my favorite collection of work over time. And with the announcement that this was going to be re-released, and then with that article that you referenced, and then all the buzz around this, and I recently listened to the Princess State releasing an eight-part podcast series about the (laughs) making of Sign of the Times. Um, All those things considered brought me back to this collection. And we'll get into the unreleased stuff and how amazing and overwhelming this super deluxe version is. But just going back to the original two LP set, I listened to it again, start to finish. And yeah, yeah, I'm still on this. I'm, I'm absolutely the same track of mine. Same, same frame. This is, this is my
3: favorite. All right, Chris, your thoughts on the album?
2: I second that. Um, I mean, to give a little backstory, uh, for the longest time, and I don't think this is too uncommon with most Prince fans, uh, or you know, even people just generally familiar with his music. Is you know, I held Purple Rain as his uh, his best musical achievement, and it's it's a worthy, you know, it, it's it, it has it, it's not unfair to say that I don't think. I mean, if you're going to make the argument, it's definitely between those two albums. I think you you know 1999 might be in the running too but it it comes down to those two and it's a bit of a horse race I think but after Prince died I you know I started doing a deep dive into his you know catalog and just really going through these albums and listening to them and you know paying a little bit more attention to you know the albums I was less familiar with and it was you know in and then in the lead up to doing this podcast I have not only changed my opinion that it's my favorite Prince album, I think it's an objective fact. I just think the musical landscape that he covers, just everything he does in this album, it, it, I would argue it's maybe one of the, if not the greatest, double albums ever released. It there, There's not an ounce of fat on this thing. I mean, there's not a wasted track. There's not a wasted note. Every song has its place and works. And, you know, my original opinion of it when I came to it was – you know the thing that's really amazing about this album too is, it, and 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 Prince's entire career during the '80s is just how how intensely pro- prolific he was during that era. I mean, this is three years after you know his previous landmark masterpiece. You know, uh, as you pointed out, Ryan, in your intro, uh, Purple Rain. And I remember at the time, you know, I, I was a huge Purple Rain fan. Loved the movie. Loved loved the the album. And you know, thought it was mind blowing. Being mildly disappointed in his follow ups to that primarily because I was too young and stupid to appreciate what Prince was trying to do. And I just wanted purple rain part two. And he didn't give us that. And Prince never really gave us what we thought we wanted. He gave us what I guess we needed. So around the world today and parade were albums that I was kind of dismissive of uh, until years later where I revisited them and I can appreciate them for what they are. I think parade is maybe his, you know, outside of the masterpiece is his best album of the 80s of his like, you know, second run albums. Uh, that being said, I really liked Side of the Times when it came out, because for me, it was like a buffet. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say at the time I liked every track on there. There were tracks I would skip over, but it's such an expansive album. You know, it was a double album that there were enough really great songs on there that I can, okay, it's like, you know, you have house quake, you have, you got the look you have, I can never take the place of your man. I was always a big fan of strange relationship. There was enough material on there that for me was like that really great Prince sound that I loved. So I don't know that I appreciated it as an album as a whole until years later, but I did like it initially, but I didn't appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I think would be fair to say.
0: I, I think one of the reasons why it comes down, why it's tough for me to, I, I spoke that it was it was tough for me to get in this one, and I took a couple of listens and really sort of to to reevaluate and, and get my head on to where I could really ju- jump into this one. And I think because, well, as you said, because it wasn't a sequel, it wasn't Purple Rain 2. Um, he's really crafting something completely different with Sign of the Times. And there is such a wide-ranging scope. Um, Not just with the the number of songs, you know, just putting out twice as much material, but the different sort of sub-genres within music, the different types of flavors he's doing. He's building kind of like an entire world where you really get samples of so much material in here that it can seem, on on a first listen, if you're not, if your head isn't tuned to that, it can seem a little bit disjointed, a little bit that one song maybe doesn't sound like it's in the same it should be on the same album as the next song and it kind of feel like you I, I really had to kind of put And I, I'll, I'll come back to this but I, I think it was actually listening to the whole album live and listening to the concert helped me reset and kind of find my focal point um before i could get into the the album itself and, and like the through line the album together whereas i think i think purple rain is just as i said much more accessible as a pop album um they're just just Two completely different experiments, but I think they're also just, he, he knocks it out of the park with both of them. So it really is kind of a neck and neck. Uh, comparison for two different things, but
1: yeah, I also want <clears throat> to jump in really quick. I think what it was you know it, the younger me that first got a hold of this stuff too. I don't think I I don't think I understood or appreciated or even even you know like I didn't fathom the concept of a changing band and how mm-hmm. that would impact music and stuff like that. And we'll talk about this as we go forward in this podcast. But the younger me had no really concept that oh the revolution is gone. It's a different band. It just sounded more jazzy and funky. I thought that, you know, there was just something about it that I think kind of at first maybe startled me at first, kind of like Chris said, uh, you know, it wasn't what I expected, but then seeing the concert movie. Like locked me in, and that mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't think I would have even appreciated it as much as I did initially if I didn't see the movie first. Mm-hmm. But seeing that, and then seeing you know this giant, f- and actually I should say too, the precursor to that, and again I'll get. A, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the precursor to seeing this massive orchestra type band on stage for this movie, I got the taste for and the appetite for during the Purple Rain tour when the I Would Die For You Baby I'm a Star got a lot of play on MTV and that like 20 minute live um, just jam because the elements of this band were presented there mm-hmm. and I think that kind of wet my appetite for it a little bit so it you know i was like oh okay so then when all of a sudden then you see like the end of the the end of the sign of the times movie with you know gonna be a beautiful night i'm like oh yeah i've I've, i get this i get it now i'm into it i've seen this before so that kind of made sense to me then
3: hey question does anybody know about the quake bullshit
0: Folks, uh, as I said, these the super deluxe edition has a lot of content. Uh, so we're gonna break it up into different parts. And the first part is pretty easy. The first two discs, or LPs, as it was originally released. This is the album Sign of the Times Remastered. 16 songs. Uh, looking at the first disc, which had nine songs, uh, side one, sign of the times, play in the sunshine, housequake, the ballad of Dorothy Parker, and then on side two, it, Starfish and Coffee, Slow Love, Hot Thing, and Forever in My Life. What do you guys think about these songs? Uh, Chris, what were some of the standout tracks from this one?
2: Uh, Housequake has long been one of my favorite Prince songs. And, I mean, that's, that, that song is just a jam. I mean, it's, it's just a banger. And I've, that was, I remember when it was first released, that was one of the immediate standouts for me. And I've always loved that song. The Sign of the Times, a title track... It's that, one of those weird songs. I mean, it's, it's it's definitely one of those, like, you know, odd songs by Prince where, like, it doesn't sound like anything else, like anyone else has ever done, but it's also got a certain element of pop accessibility to it. And for me, like, it, it's been a slow burn in appreciating that song, because it was a popular song. It's one of his better known songs. And it became this thing for me where, like, as a Prince fan, I was never sure how much I liked the song or how much I was just kind of acclimated to hearing it a lot but in terms of a of of an album opener and setting the tone for what would follow as much as there can be you know any kind of unified tone throughout it i think it's a pretty powerful statement Mm -hmm. and you know i kind of see why as this album transitioned through various projects why he decided to make you know name it this and have that be the thing that opens the album. Because I, I do like what it, the tone it does set for everything else that follows. Um, always like playing the sunshine. It's kind of a song, you know, fun, playful song. Probably the most upbeat song on the album. And I find it interesting that like Prince doesn't allow for that very long. He, I mean, he literally has the needle scratch and tells himself to shut up as he goes into the rest <laughs> of the album. So it was like he was going to allow him, himself this moment of frivolity and then get back to the somber, darker stuff. Um, Battle of Dorothy Parker. Uh, that's a song that I've grown to appreciate a lot more because that's not an immediately accessible song, but I think it's a very interesting, cool song. Um, it, I've always loved. Uh, Starfish and Coffee, as I'm revisiting this album, this is one of the things I love about Prince and his music and revisiting albums like this, is like you can go back to an album... Especially one you're really familiar with, and think you're locked in in terms of how you feel about all the songs, and then suddenly you kind of rediscover these other songs. So, Starfish and Coffee is currently one of my favorite songs on this album.
3: All in line to to teacher Miss Kathleen. First was Kevin, then came Lucy, third in line was me. All of us were ordinary compared to Cynthia Rose. She always stood in the back of the line, a smile beneath her nose. Every number was 20. And every single day, if you ask me what you have for breakfast, this is what she'd say Starfish and coffee, maple syrup and jam, but scotch with a tangerine, the side of a ham. If you set your mind free, baby, maybe you understand. Starfish and coffee, maple syrup and jam.
2: And I, I just love the, the, i mean, just the, the imagery and the, 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 the optimism in it that kind of doesn't exist on the other songs. But there's also something sinister about that song for me, kind of an undercurrent of it. And maybe that's kind of because the tone is set. So I'm, uh, it's just the way the album is put together. It's like the songs are different and speak of different things, but somehow they kind of run into each other a little bit and inform what the other songs mean. So that's a song like currently is like one of my favorite tracks. Slow Love is a a, a great uh, slow jam. Um, Big fan of it. I've come to appreciate Prince uh, as a balladeer more as I'm rediscovering his music. And this is definitely one of his better ones. I think it's topped by a song that appears later in the album. And then Hot Thing. I mean, that's just a great, you know, (laughs) Prince funky jam. Uh, Big fan. Always had been, always been a standout track for me. And then Forever In My Life is also a song that I've rediscovered in this album that is currently one of my favorite tracks. And not to get too far ahead, but I really, really like the acoustic version that appears in the unreleased material and how how much that works. But I like both versions of it.
0: Mm -hmm. Neil, some of your highlights?
1: Well, yeah, I've got got some great stories to kind of piggyback on the stuff that Chris said. And I'll kind of go through them quickly. But there's some from that... (laughs) There's some, there's some neat stuff. Like for, for example, the sign of the times thing, this is probably the coolest story that I heard come out of the story of sign of the times from the Prince state that I heard. Um, so it was July 13th, 1986. And I want to say, I, I want to say they were on the parade tour. I believe probably 86, I guess it would have been something like that, but it was, I I remember uh, the woman doing the podcast remembered the date, July 13th, 86. They were in LA and Prince got the LA times that morning and he read the headlines and it talked about, there was an earthquake somewhere in like central California. And there was the story about gang violence and somebody overdosed of a heroin thing. And there was, you know, like all the lyrics to the song came out of one newspaper and, (laughs) And it was like, that's why she remembered the date, And she was like, Prince took all that stuff. And he was, you know, basically in his own Prince way, was just like, wow, what a fucked up world we're living in right now. And he took the newspaper home, flew to Minneapolis on an off day in the tour by himself, recorded the song, came back to the tour two days later and had roughly the entire song mixed, like almost entirely. I'm sure they went back and did overdubs and stuff like that. But, Basically, and then, so, like, a couple nights later, Wendy talks about their, she shows up at Soundcheck, Prince has already been there for, like, an hour, and he's playing something through the PA system, and this is during the parade tour, um, and not even the whole band's there yet, but Prince is playing the opening drum salvo whatever you call it of sign of the times and he's just ripping his guitar solo similar to the intro in the movie version of the song which doesn't really make it on the album but he's ripping his guitar solo over this drum track and wendy walked in and her quote was oh my god this is going to change the world and that's what she said so that's that's the story of that particular song that I love. Um, really quickly to go through the other ones, Chris, I agree with a lot of the stuff that you mentioned. Housequake is just the, the ultimate jam. And again, I should point this out, Ryan, and maybe you'll, maybe you'll agree with me as you, as I go through this. I think a lot of these, I appreciated more the live versions of from the concert anyway. Um, some of them I, like hot thing, I think might, or I know slow love, for example, slow love. Absolutely. I love the live version of it, especially because he sings it a little differently in the third verse or whatever it is um, so i appreciated like the live versions of it a lot let's
4: make it
3: start.
1: starfish and coffee song first of all chris <laughs> i loved this song the moment i heard it this was one of my favorites the moment i got this album and i didn't know why now interestingly enough this song has a writing credit by Susanna melvoin which is right, right. you all know wendy's sister and prince's girlfriend at the time they talk about this in the pot in the in the story of sign of the times um Susanna actually talks about the fact that she gets a writing credit because the story is about a girl that she knew in elementary school. Mm. There was a girl who was on the spectrum on the autism spectrum and this girl and, and they rave about her and what a, beautiful soul she is and what an amazing mind she had you know it's a, they rave about this girl but they said that she you know lived in this fantasy creative world that prince tried to tap into and during the recording of this album prince came up to susanna one time and said hey tell me that story about that girl again and susanna's like oh yeah this this is what she talked about and this is what she did and this is what she said at lunchtime and blah 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 and <laughs> the only difference was the actual line that this girl said was starfish and pee-pee was what she, what she had. She had starfish and pee-pee. And Prince is like, I'm not putting that in a song. <laughs> so, but she t- Susanna and Wendy tell him the story. Prince goes down to his studio because uh, Susanna was living with Prince at the time. Prince comes up an hour later dripping with sweat shirt off. And he's like, I got it. <laughs> he plays the song and it's done. <laughs> so that's, that's the story of starfish and coffee.
2: So Prince does have a line that he won't cross. There, there is something that there he. There is the a line. And now That's we fun. know.
1: Yep, there is a just, line. Can,
2: can I just add something about starfish and coffee? I forgot to mention that is yeah. really cool. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, or you know, listeners might not be, but I, I highly recommend you look it up. in the In the in the annals of like you know weird things that Prince did, um, in the in the late '90s, I want to say '98 or '99, there was a Muppet Show revival. Prince appeared on that show, and for whatever reason, performed this with Muppets. This <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not know that. YouTube it. It's yeah. amazing to watch. And it's like, why? But uh, it's, <laughs> but it's it's really cool.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I love that song. Love love this entire first album. I'm not gonna get into every single song. Um, but yeah, I, I those are those are my specific notes that I wanted to touch on. But this that entire one side one, side two is just phenomenal.
0: I think a real missed opportunity was not having Prince do something like "Get Off" or "Sexy Motherfucker" with the Muppets. I think (laughs) I think that that would have played better, but. Uh, for for Sign of the Times, like as an, I think it's great as it's like this opening track, and you guys are kind of like mentioning it. I love just like the first 10 to 20 seconds just sort of setting this tempo, kind of like getting this little beat, this little jazzy thing, and then and then just the, oh, yeah, and then the drums kicking in and everything. I just think to sort of set that up, um, I think thematically it kind of feels a bit like a prelude to the album. If you look at the whole double album kind of as, mm-hmm. as a – a performance all of itself because then I think play in the sunshine feels like an overture bringing in like this whole band for like a short little big kind of like, you know, happy, yeah, kind of orchestration. Um And then when we go to housequake <sighs> housequake, I have mixed feelings about because I think it's probably my second favorite song on the whole album, but it's also one of those things where, it feels like such a perfect quintessential live jam that I think maybe like the album can't really capture the energy that needed that the song really mm. needs. Like if you're not listening to this song live, what's the point? I kinda like feel like this thing sort of like like this will be a weird one, but um Neil, uh the band Zwan. You remember the song Jesus I?
1: Oh yeah. Absolutely. I know exactly and, where you're coming from.
0: And how yeah. great that song is live when you yeah. get the whole energy and you get a crowd moshing to that and just getting into that.
1: Yeah. And the and energy then you yeah, listen- there's a certain energy about that song that can't be duplicated on the album.
0: And when you listen to the album, it's like, ah, all right, I guess it's the same
2: song, but
4: Yeah, they're hmm. playing the same
1: chords. Yeah. But <laughs>
2: you know, you know what's interesting is I mean, it's you know, it sounds like you guys definitely both were more introduced to this album through the live performance. I would I didn't say so, go- yeah. I didn't come to the live performance till after, so I kind of have the opposite reaction. Oh, I like cool. the tighter, you know, sound of the of the recording. Not that I don't like the live performance of it, right. but one thing that always throws me is obviously this is one of his, his Camille tracks, so he doesn't have the pitched up vocals uh-huh. when he's doing it live. Right. Always throws me. It yeah. makes me. It, it feels like it sounds off. Huh. So that's it. That's that's interesting. Yeah. So I well, I, I prefer I prefer the uh, the, the the album version. Yeah.
1: Makes makes perfect sense. I'm curious, Chris. Did you do you remember? Did you see this in a theater? I did not.
2: Interesting. I did not see. I probably didn't even see it until the early '90s when it was released on video.
1: Huh. That's yeah. weird. Yeah, I, I yeah. saw that. I saw this in the theater. So my my connection to this was right. even even before Ryan, even before we got the VHS tape of it, or whatever. Like I I went and saw this in a theater. So well, yeah. I, I I think I I think I I absolutely connected to the live tracks before the album.
2: Well, you have to understand that uh, I was feeling Prince fandom can be challenging sometimes, and I yes, was it can.
1: Pre- I was feeling
2: pretty burned from seeing under the cherry moon in the theater <laughs> the, the right. previous year. So I, I don't think I was about to waste another theater trip on a Prince movie anytime soon. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs>
0: my, my last note about a uh, house quake, because again, like regardless of my, my feelings about like that, the live performance versus the studio, I do. I love the song and I will listen to the song whenever my favorite part about it though, is that there's a literal call and response To which he replies to with bullshit. (laughs) He's like, like, "Are you ready for this?" Yeah, bullshit. It's like, well, why'd you ask the question then? I don't, I don't know. I just, I love that part. <laughs> slow love. I, like, as you guys said, it's a, it's a slow, long uh, love song. It's a sexy, it, it, for me, it's like one of the same slow ballads like that I love, like the beautiful ones or, you know, scandalous from, from Batman or do me baby, that type of thing, or free from 1999. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love when he gets into these type of slow, um, you know, higher falsetto type of songs. Um, forever in my life. Chris, you were talking about this one. Listening to this again, there was something about it, and I think I also think it was, like, when I listened to the acoustic version, maybe helped me realize to me, this feels like Prince doing a version of, like, an Otis Redding type of song. Right. This feels to me like the songwriting feels more kind of like a... um Almost like a Motown or a sitting on the dock of the bay type of like thing or something. Like he's he's kind of tapping into that, but he's giving it his Prince type of production
3: value.
2: Yeah, I think especially with the acoustic version, which it really kind of highlighted for me, is like this idea that like I love is is experimental and you know, wide-reaching as Prince can be in his songs, in terms of like you know the, the music, sometimes he just kind of settles into like a clearly established genre and form, and just absolutely crushes it. And it's like the idea that he just kind of sits down with these simple guitar chords and you know, and it's a pretty simple love song. I mean, there's you know, the lyrics are pretty straightforward, and it's amazing. Yeah, that's what I love about it.
1: Okay, I got to tell you this one then, since we're talking about this song. Um, so Susanna, again, his girlfriend at the time, tells tells a story where. Prince recorded this song like one night and one, by the way, one of the, one of the recurring themes that I keep discovering is that Prince just never slept. He was like constantly like, like during the making of this album, and I'll talk about this later on too, like the studio, Warner brothers had to hire two producers, two sets of producers and engineers so that one could sleep while the other worked. they took shifts because Prince recorded nonstop. So, but anyway, so going to this particular song. So Prince stays up all night, writes the song, records it, brings it upstairs to the kitchen and like plays it to Susanna. And she was like, Oh my God, that's beautiful. You know? And I think at the time he was working on songs that he was using for other people, which we'll get into in the outtakes and the B sides once we go forward. But she asked him, she's like, who's, who's this one for? And he goes, no, I'm keeping this one for myself. This is, this is for me. And she says that was her way of understanding that he wrote this song about her. And then the interviewer kind of says something like, well, it's kind of vague. That's kind of like, okay, you're like, whatever. And then she says, no, you got to understand. Prince doesn't utilize language the way that we do. Like Prince doesn't like to say I love you or thank you or whatever. He doesn't know how to do that. She said – he tells that he says that through the music. So he would never, they would never have a romantic conversation where he would be like, I love you. I want you forever in my life. He wouldn't know how to say that to her, but he could present her with the song and that's how she knew. Right. So that, that was just a fascinating insight into the, the psyche that is Prince. I mean, he's, you know, I mentioned this before, like he's a little spectrum himself. You know, this mm. is like the, he's got this fascinating is the only way I can describe it.
2: Yeah, and that, you know what, I picked that up from Prince. It's why I never tell my girlfriend I love her. I just play a
1: Prince album. Smart. (laughs) So smart. All
0: right. Any other thoughts about uh, the first LP before we move on?
2: Yeah, one other quick note I just wanted to add I don't know if this was covered in that that Sign of the Times podcast that uh, you listened to, but I remember reading, you know, speaking of like how Prince never slept or, you know, often recorded odd hours, um, that the ballad of Dorothy Parker was a dream he had and he woke up in the middle of the night, went into the recording studio like at 3 a.m. and then just laid down the song like as a like just you know straight from his dream and that's
1: that's awesome. No they didn't touch yeah. on that one. So that's yeah. that's really yeah. cool. Yeah.
0: All right. The second LP, the second disc had seven songs You Got the Look, which featured Sheena Easton, If I Was Your Girlfriend, Strange Relationship, I could never take the place of your man. And then on the second side, The Cross, It's Gonna Be a Beautiful Night, and A Door. Um, I tend to think the second disc is stronger than the first one. Um, I mean, just the fact that four out of the seven songs appeared on his greatest hits, double albums. <laughs> or, um, what do you guys think about these ones? I, I mean, I've, I've mentioned that on two previous podcasts uh, that I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man is my favorite Prince song. Um, that's just one. Anytime I hear this one, I just want to get up. I want to move. It's it's it always brings a smile to my face. Like top five favorite song of all time for me is that one. Um, but I I don't have anything else to say because I've talked about it at length. So. I
1: said this before in the other podcast too the way you feel about it, i could never take the place of your man i feel about if i was your girlfriend that's one of my all-time top five print songs i will never ever turn that off that's 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 like the crown jewel of this album for me. And I don't know specifically why. It's just, There's something something about it. Now, I'm glad Chris touched on the fact before about the Camille songs, like the alternate voice things. And we can talk a little bit about more of the once we go into the recording of the album and the outtakes and stuff. But there was something really, really cool about this particular song and i love the funky bass line it's got kind of the, the way the music hits me in the song now obviously it's a slower song but it feels to me the way erotic city did like it kind of like there's a drum and bass kind of thing that just gets me and there's something about like it didn't need to have any other music or maybe like a when doves cry kind of thing like there's just something about the music that it doesn't need a whole lot of filler and the song just moves me
3: your girlfriend Would you let me dress you I mean, help me pick out your clothes Before we go out Not that you're helpless But sometimes, sometimes Those are the things that being in love's about If I was one and only friend Would you run to me If somebody hurt you Even if it's somebody
1: Trip on week, please. Please. So I've always loved this song And it took me a little while I think in my I mean I should preface this When, when I first heard the song I think I was still trying to determine, like I was young enough where I was trying to figure out, is Prince gay? Is he androgynous? Is he this? Is he that? Like, I don't understand. Like he talks about being a girl all the time and he dresses like one, but then he sleeps with hot girls. And, you know, it was like, I didn't know. So this song kind of fell into that. Like, I'm like, I don't know if I'm supposed to like this song. I, you know, I'm not sure. Then I got older and I realized, no, the things he's saying are, and then this was echoed in by Susanna, in the in the story of Sound of the Times, she actually said this was his breakup song to her. This was this was basically when he talked about. It. This is an argument that they had a lot, which is he would say, like, if I was your girlfriend, you would tell me this. If I was your girlfriend, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, you're keeping the, you know. He was super protective, super insecure in a relationship, super closed off so that nobody could really get to him anyway. Like, Prince was just all about the music, and he was socially awkward in all relationships. So it's, it had to be impossible to date the guy. Like, you were never going to be that important to him. <laughs> it's just, that's got to be frustrating. But there, this was, like, kind of the moment moment where she he she said he took the actual words from a fight they had and put it in this song and made it a sexy song but she was like i knew what that was she was when that when he recorded that song the writing was on the wall and we were done within a month so i just thought that's fascinating because i never got the sense that it was a breakup song when i listened to it and aside from that the other stuff um the cross i think i love the cross the most um Or, I mean, uh, of the things I'm going to talk about, the thing I like about The Cross the most is not Susanna Melvoin, Susan Rogers, the engineer of most of Prince's earlier albums. Um, She talked about, when producing this album, she said that they go in, and this is classic Prince, and you're going to love this, and this is all I'm going to say about it. So they go in, Prince has this idea for The Cross, and it's all in his head. He doesn't have a demo, he doesn't have a track, he doesn't have anything. He's got the whole thing, and he's going to record the song, The Cross... From the bottom up. So he's going to do the drums first, then add bass to it, then add guitar, then add, like, he's going to layer it going from the bottom up and then get to vocals. But nobody had heard anything yet. Like, she didn't have a demo track to work off of. Chris just goes, Hey, just roll tape. I got to, I'm going to do this thing. So he goes in there and starts doing the drums. And it's basically just the foot pedal. It's do, do, do. Like, and so he's going on and he's playing this. And then she was like, And then he gets into it. And so she's like, watching prince record drums to a song when you hear when you've never heard the song he's doing before she's like it's 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 shockingly weird because she goes he is reacting to things he hears in his head where the guitar is going to come in where the keyboards are going to play where the horns go like he's react he knows the song nobody else does so (laughs) she's like it's just weird like you don't know what notes to give him because you don't know the song so anyway long story short The end of the song starts to speed up as it builds in intensity and builds in electricity and stuff like that. And it gets to a point where she goes, the producer in me was saying, okay, we're going a little bit off the rails now. Like, this would, okay, this is, like, he's lost the time signature for the song. It's going too fast. And so he's done. He's done. Comes out of the recording booth and everything. She's like, okay, I'm going to try and think of how to say this without hurting his feelings or without pissing him off. But she goes okay for our next take let's try to maybe use a metronome and she goes you know like a click track so you can stay on time you know maybe like how do you feel about doing that and he looks at her and he goes what do you mean the next take and that was (laughs) that that ended the conversation done (laughs) so one take drums that's what you hear on the record
2: (laughs) wow I agree with Ryan on this. I think this is the stronger uh, side or two sides of the uh, double LP. Um, Probably not uh, an opinion I would have had initially and almost certainly didn't, even though I love a lot of the songs on here. But, I mean, it's a shorter, you know, these two sides are shorter, less songs. So, the sheer quantity of songs on the first two sides, you know, there are more songs on those first two sides that I like just by sheer force of quantity. So. One of the things that's been interesting for me is I've recently acquired this album on vinyl. And so I'm listening to it for the first time as four distinct sides, as opposed to like a, you know, a CD is all one cool. thing. And I think I had it on cassette and that's just two sides. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to make the argument that the side three, which is you got the look. If I was your girlfriend, strange relationship, and I could never take the place of your man is the most powerful side of any of the four sides those four songs are absolutely incredible all in a row like that and uh you guys both choosing one of those songs as your one of your favorite prince songs or your favorites very worthy choices Um, i know initially coming into this album you know if i was your girlfriend is definitely one of prince's more challenging songs and like you, Neil, like when I was younger, I didn't get it. I didn't yeah. know what yeah. I didn't I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> and it's kind of a weird song. So it was one of those songs, like when you're listening to a CD, because you know, his book ended between two songs I really love. I've always loved You Got the Look and Strange Relationship is one of my favorite Prince Deep Cuts of all time. Mm-hmm. And so it was one of those songs you just kind of leave on in between the two songs you really like. <laughs> like, you, like, you don't hate it. I'm not going to fast forward through it, but I'll just let it play and not pay attention to it and wait for that song I really like to come out next. And it's one of those songs that, you know, I, as I got older and, and, you know, and as an adult, I now I know what he's talking about in that song. Right, and right. it's really, really powerful. And then, of course, yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Ryan. I could Never Take the Place of Your Man is just an amazing song. I love the longer version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I will say that I've taken away from the live performance is whenever I'm listening to it. And I'm, you know, singing along with it. I always, you know, the the part that comes up in the video from the movie (laughs) where he goes, at least I wouldn't, I always say
0: it. (laughs) <laughs> I I, so, I
2: always do that one when he yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah.
0: I, at least I would and then and then just before the last line when he goes I could never take the place uh when he does
2: like when he doubles up when he's like I never take get- the place he never <laughs> takes but yet when he exactly and I think that was you know burned in my because that was the video and I think yeah, it's interesting because yeah. I've, I've rewatched the video recently and I don't re- I didn't remember this but the video because from the movie is, is live it's not the album uh,
1: version it's the live right, version right. they played yeah, the video right right right. So,
2: so anyway, um, I think those four songs, I mean, first of all, none of them sound like any of the others. And they're all about romantic relationships in one form or another. And the lyrical territory this guy covers and the thematic territory about, I mean, if, if they're, you know, I, I, I would have to imagine that romantic relationships are like the number one topic of pop songs throughout pop music history. And the, the, the ground this guy covers, that Prince covers in those four songs the complexity that he talks about in relationships is stunning. I mean, I don't think there are pop musicians, great pop musicians that have covered that much territory in their careers that he does <laughs> yeah. in these four songs. Yeah. I mean, if I was your girlfriend and strange relationships are two of them lyrically two of the most really intriguing, interesting relationship songs I've ever heard. I mean, obviously if I was your girlfriend is a song about intimacy and, you know, it's like he's he's questioning why aren't we closer and, you know, why it's I mean, it's amazing. And then Strange Relationship is about this weird, dysfunctional relationship. And I, I'm I'm a loss for the exact lyric, but it's, you know, I can't stand to see you happy, but I also can't stand to see you cry. And I mean, it, oh, it's that's my favorite
1: lyric in the song. Yeah. So, yeah,
2: That's it's a powerful lyric and it's, it's like, shockingly
1: it, real, too. It's like, wow, I think everybody at some point has felt that way, but you can't say it. (laughs) Exactly. And it's
2: like this, and and then it's, and and it's all, you know, and it's wrapped in this kind of almost upbeat kind of pop song. It has these these like dark, complex lyrics. So yeah, those four songs for me, I mean, taken as a grouping are, it's probably the best section of the album. I mean, it's just what, what he talks about and, and the lyrics and the themes is, is just, it's mind blowing to me. Um, and getting on to the, the, the last side, I mean, the cross, I mean, you touched on this, Neil talked about it and I've always loved it. It's a classic Prince guitar track. Um, mm-hmm. I remember after he passed and all the popular musicians were, you know, appearing on you know various award shows and TV shows and doing covers of Prince to honor him. And let's say, you know, Purple Rain was popular and, you know, Let's Go Crazy was done. But I remember Lenny Kravitz uh, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, when they did a tribute to Prince after he died, he did this song and it was, you know, it was pretty great. And I I, I remember really appreciating that because it was like not a song. A lot of people know by Prince and I thought yeah. it was a really cool choice for him to do. Um, it's going to be a beautiful night. I know it's, I mean, it's a great song. I mean, Neil, you made the connection to you know, like the, the baby I'm a star. Mm-hmm. Um, I would die for you. You know, it's just like, this is free flowing jam, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. It's just him and the band just going on and on and on. I know initially, um, when I first got this album, I liked that song, but this is always where I tuned out because it's like a you know, it's like a 10-minute song, yep. nine, 10-minute song. So I get into it and I'm like, yeah, it's a good song. And then like around minute five, I'm like, all right. <laughs> and I never really got around to Adore because in my, you know, younger years of Prince Fandom, I I wasn't as big a fan of the ballads. I wanted the, you know, the the bangers and the guitar yeah. jams. And so Adore is another song that I've come around to later in life. And I don't know if you guys saw the uh, the Prince tribute concert that they aired uh, earlier this year on CBS. And it was like, uh, you know, like an all-star collection. Usher was there. And uh, who else was part of it? Uh, Sheila E. was there. Anyway, they had Earth, Wind & Fire perform this song. Really? And, hmm. and they actually recorded this uh, last year. Uh, and I, I was lucky enough to go. So I saw, I saw it live. And yeah, it was pretty amazing. And it's it this you know I, I mentioned earlier about "Slow Love" um, being a great ballad and an impressive showcase of Prince's power and prowess as a balladeer. Right. And it's, but it, but it's topped by this song. I mean, this mm-hmm. song is is one of his, his best ballads. And it's just you know when he gets in that really high falsetto uh. range <laughs> and just and, and just I mean it destroys it. I mean the guy yeah. has, has such range, such vocal range. I mean he can just get up there. And, you know, this could be something that was recorded by, like, the Delphonics or the Shylights. Yeah. Know, you <laughs> yeah. Know. It's yeah. just an old, like, I mean, it, it's a sexy-ass song. For me, it's almost like this song feels to me, and again, this I think speaks to the arrangement of the album as a whole, you know, because it's such a journey. Like, it just takes you through you know, this, this whole raucous, you know, sexy, funky, soulful, like all the words, you, you know that you use Ryan. And then you end up with this song and it's almost like kind of the afterglow of the album. Mm -hmm. It's like Prince has just made sweet love to you. And now he's going to hold you in his arms. (laughs) And so that's a song I have really grown to uh, love in recent years. And, and it's, uh, I have a deep appreciation for it.
1: Wow. It's so cool that you mentioned that, Ryan, I just want to mention this really fast. That's I've borrowed from this. Everything Chris just said, I've borrowed for this in the construction of albums or playlists or my own music. And I never realized I did it until you mentioned it, Chris, you gave it like a, you put it, made it tangible, but like that, Ending ending an album like with an epic, like the penultimate kind of closer and Mm -hmm. then tailing off with something gentle kind of thing. Like Ryan, you know, we've talked about this before with like Siamese Dream, you know, how you have how you have Luna after Silverfuck kind of thing. You know, this this sort of like, wow, Chris, that's fascinating because I do the same thing now with all of my playlists. It's like you gotta have the ultimate encore piece, but just kind of like gingerly send them off into the night.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, he did a similar thing with Purple Rain. You know, I mean, Purple Rain's obviously not, uh, you know, it's more of a guitar rock ballad, but still, same
1: idea. Yeah, yeah, sure. And then come back. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I I
0: kind of thought about, like, the second hit, what what would be, like, side B for this one as a... Thematic kind of response to the first one because I, I do like you. Know, I, I really like the cross. I think of it as one of his better guitar-driven songs, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which is really interesting to hear the, how that the, he went about producing this and what the the studio <laughs> journey of this song was. That's that's pretty fascinating. Um, but I think like going from that, that sounds like kind of like the end of a regular concert. Like that would be a closer, and then you bring in the encore for it's going to be a beautiful night as this big. line Live jam and it's a live track on the album, as it's just like really kind of long. But to me, this feels like we've gone from playing in the sunshine and housequake, you know that double feature, and then this one is the uh, the final kind of response to that. Um, right. And then just as we had sign of the times was kind of like this opening prologue leading into that one, while everybody's kind of you know kind of setting the mood for this. Then I feel like a door is the response to that one too, as you mentioned, that kind of like nice little afterglow, you know, after like, you know, epilogue for it. So I do think that's, yeah, that's a really cool, um, the the response of that. So I I would say symmetry, but I feel like I'm quoting George Lucas, who didn't know how to, didn't know what what that word meant. (laughs) It rhymes. (laughs) rhymes.
1: Faster, more intense. Yeah.
0: Other than that, uh, yeah, uh, the song Strange Relationship you talked about. I, I probably wouldn't have made this connection except, Neil, uh, like we, when earlier this year, when we talked about New Edition and that family tree, the music part of Strange Relationship really reminds me of that late 80s, early 90s hip hop. Yeah. And it kind of reminds it, ha- it has a sort of Bobby Brown New Edition feel to me. Um, which is interesting because looking up I guess he, the original he originally wrote this one back in 1983 and then it was reworked by Wendy and Lisa in 85 and then he brought it again and reworked it for the, the last the album version for this one so
3: Baby I just can't stand to see you More than that, I hate to see you sad How do you I just
1: might do something rash this relationship, ship, ship, ship. I, to- I Real quick, I just want to touch on this. Sign of the Times is a really good example of this, but like this is, I mean, when he, he, he wrote that in 86, um, but he had already kind of, he was already touching on hip hop and, and stuff long before the rest of the world kind of discovered it and it became mainstream and pop, which was in the 90s in 86 he when he presented sign of the times to the band he was like you know drum and bass he was like this is going to be there this is the future right now we're getting rid of a lot of filler a lot of melody that's going to sound electronic and there's going to be a lot of spoken word stuff and then there's even i think which we'll get into as we go forward but what was oh god what was the song i'm thinking of there's one of them uh, maybe Coco Boys, I think, was one of the outtakes that had like the first rap that I remember hearing Prince do or something, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about later on. But anyway, there was there was a lot of that. So Ryan, I think, yeah, it's it's kind of funny, strange relationship. The sounds he was kind of borrowing on were all over the map on this. It's, it's, this was such a, and you can tell it's you know we've talked about this and we'll talk about it again. There's three different albums of material coming together at once you know and there was you know jazz influences by the new band there was you know hip-hop influences by the stuff he was reading in the newspapers and and whatnot and so yeah he borrowed from a lot that's really cool so
0: my my last question for the album was just going to be sort of where does this rank in your prince discography and it sounds like you guys both think that this is his best yes God, it's really close for me. I, I I still think if I had to pick one, I would pick Purple Rain. But yeah, that's that's almost more just because Purple Rain feels comparatively streamlined and simple and, and accessible, just as a piece of pop music or, or you know pop icona. Um, and this is more the the as I as I said at the beginning, kind of like the broader, the wide ranging, the scope, the ambition. Um, and just like going all over the place. I mean, but, but this does, I mean, like as as that description, this does kind of talk about like all of Prince's, all of Prince's, you know, styles and materials up through the eighties at least, uh, could be, could be captured in this one. So it's, a. It's a really tough call,
1: but uh. yeah, I think, I think I would say, and this is probably going to spark some controversy and maybe even some backlash amongst our listeners. I mean, it, it, it's one thing to say, what's your favorite Prince album? Like that's kind of, that's subjective or anything, but I would venture to say that this is not necessarily in, not in terms of what somebody's favorite is, but I would kind of, I find it hard to, for somebody to argue that this isn't the best Prince album in terms of quality Right. and somebody, you know, there are people that like, I like, Purple Rain could be your favorite album, but this is a better album. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I say that, and I just really, quick, I think it's because of, of basically to put a cap on all the things we've talked about, Chris, you talked a lot about the lyrics and the adult themes, and Ryan, you talked about you didn't quite get this at first when you were young until you were older. All of us have kind of recognized that we've kind of come to appreciate it more as we've gotten older. Right? Like, you know, as we dissect, I mean, lyrically, Chris, you touched on side three, you know, that whole, that whole mm-hmm. side. You know, and Ryan, to take a quote from your favorite song, there is so much power in the fact that he says, I might be qualified for a one-night stand, but I could never take the place. Like, that. that is jaw-droppingly awesome. That is such a strong lyric that some of the greatest songwriters in history can't put it so succinctly. You know, and, and mm-hmm. that's just, that's, that's foreign. And then on top of that, You've got all these elements of challenging musical changes in, in the construction and arrangements of the songs, um, going jazz, going... Like, there's just... This is a difficult... I mean, we'll talk about this once we go to the live stuff, but he rehearsed the shit out of the band. And he was hard on them. And But this is just... This is one of the most complex, amazing, deep... Challenging pieces of music I've ever heard before and that's why I would argue that this is whether or not you like 1999 more or Purple Rain more or whatever I think this its it, I would find it hard for somebody to argue that this isn't the greatest piece of work Prince ever did
2: Yeah, I, I second that emphatically and I think for me you know, in my debates, I mean, same as you, Ryan. I mean, Purple Rain and Sign of the Times, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, this is you know, this is basically a heavyweight boxing match here between these two, and they're and they're just slugging it out. I would argue, though, to a certain extent, it's not entirely a fair comparison because, unlike, and this is, I think, speaks to the strength of Sign of the Times as a piece of music and a piece of art. Unlike. Uh, Previous albums. I mean, this thing obviously was a was a distillation of multiple album projects, multiple music musical styles. I mean, there's there's music in here from two different bands, or at least you know from eras that he was working with two different bands coming together. Whereas it feels like, especially with Purple Rain, and you know, obviously with with you know, I think also with Around the World of the Day and Parade that uh, were between those two albums, you know, Prince had a, almost like a singular vision of what those albums were going to be. And for me, and, and this is something else you mentioned, Ryan, and I agree with you, is you know, Purple Rain feels like a, a concept album to me because to me it is so married to that movie. I mean, the track order is almost identical; the songs appear almost in the same order in the movie that they do on the album. So <laughs> right. I can't help but I can't help but listen to that album and have the story of the movie play out as I'm listening to it because it's it's tied to it
0: at what point does that become a normal studio album? And at what point is it a soundtrack?
2: Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. So it's like, you know, and you listen to it and it's, so it feels like it's, it's tighter. It's more focused, um, which is not necessarily to its discredit, but I guess what it comes down to is that my, my, my love of Purple Rain and, and, and I deeply love that album. I mean, that peaked. I mean, there a long time ago. There's there's, 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 for me. I mean, I can listen to that album without even putting the music on. I know it backwards and forwards. I've listened to every track a million times, front to back. I mean, there's no, there, you know, there's, there's no, there's no skips on that album. But you're Everything not gonna is, discover anything new from it. I, I am not. There, there, I am past the point. I am decades past the point to discovering anything new about that album. Sign of the times is still revealing things to me as I'm discovering it and, you know, like new parts of it. And because it, it, because it does, it it has so much to say and it does cover so much territory that you can jump around and, and listen to different parts of it. And, you know, like, like, I mean, literally just getting that album on vinyl a couple of weeks ago, I'm suddenly like laser focused on that side three, listening to those four songs as a grouping together. Like I put that on by itself and just listen to those four songs and how they work together. and, 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 yeah, so I mean, sign of the times is, is a deeper dive for me, and there's so much more to discover and continue to discover. It's a richer, more rewarding experience, and that's not to say that Purple Rain isn't, but it's just that I'm you know, in terms of discovery, I'm done with Purple Rain.
1: That is a great analogy, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, that's that, absolutely. I couldn't have put it better myself. That's absolutely great. There, we're like sign of the times still has stuff that reveals to me. So, yeah.
0: Alright, uh, moving on. We're going to be talking about the third disc in the super deluxe uh, edition of this album. There were four official singles from Sign of the Times that featured slightly tweaked versions of the album songs, edited for radio play, obviously, uh, and then B-sides. And among the B-sides were two new tracks that did not appear on the album. So the singles were the Sign of the, Ti- or Sign of the Times, uh, which had the B-side La 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 He 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 co-written by Sheena Easton, Number two was If I Was Your Girlfriend with the B-side Shaka Three was You got the Look and the B-side was just Housequake. And four was I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man, the radio edited version, with the B-side of Hot Thing. And then there were promotional singles that came out, but those were like the four official ones. Um, I, I mean, I, I would just say I love the two unreleased or the two B-side tracks, La La La, Hee He He and Shaka Delica. I love them as much as almost any song on the album um i could argue that they they belong on the album as much as what i think maybe some of like the weaker songs on that I mean, on its face, "la la la," he, he, he is a kind of a silly song. He's literally projecting himself as a dog to try and like seduce a cat. Um, he really leans into that metaphor, um, but it's such a fun and funky and playful song. He uses a track to sound like dog barking. Um, I yeah, I I really really dig that song. Um, there, there's also the album has an extended version, of the highly explosive edit. Um, <laughs> I mean, when when you're talking about Prince, there's only one way that that can go. Um, I, I like it. I don't. I, I don't think. I don't think that version adds anything that the regular track doesn't. Um, I also I really like Shockadelica, but there's something about like the music. It, it it feels a little bit repetitive between Hot Thing and maybe a little bit of Housequake too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't know if you could have all three of those on the album without like at least the musicality part of it sounding a little bit repetitive. Um but I, I do like Chaka Delica too and the the longer version that's on the disc has a really cool guitar part in the middle that I dig. What do you guys think about any of the you know extended or longer versions of the singles or those uh those B sides?
1: You know, it's it's interesting. I, I think it kinda depends a little bit on my mood. Like Uh, And Ryan, you know, this going back to previous podcasts, like I do have, I purposely established um, like a Prince dance party techno workout playlist kind of thing once where I took like the, the extended computer blue. And, you know, like, so I've, I've done this before where there's a lot of these long, longer outtakes, you know, the let's go crazy 10 minute extended dance mix with the, with the long intro from the movie or the middle part from the movie. So I, I appreciate all these things for certain elements you know for certain like for example I, you know a lot of these a lot of the sign of the times extended tracks are great if i was going on a treadmill run or if i was you know if i was going to if i was going to work out and i needed music pump up music in the background and stuff i think they work phenomenally well for that i'm obviously glad that they didn't make the album because you couldn't listen to every song of these being 10 minutes long. And, and and a lot of times with these, with Prince's remix and stuff, there's just a lot of instrumental interludes and things like that. So I love hearing them. I think they're cool. And I think they've got a certain use to it. I don't really have a whole lot more to say other than that, but there are some, there are, I I definitely have cultivated a playlist of Prince's extended dance tracks for a purpose and they work really well.
2: Yeah. I, um, I mean, this, this, in terms of like, you know, quote unquote, previously unreleased material, which most of it really isn't. But, you know, like as a you know, bonus content for this collection, this is probably the least interesting s- section for me, only because I I pretty much heard all of this. Um, my feelings on those songs, I mean, like you, Ryan, uh, I think I discovered both of them or heard them first with the release of the Hits and B-Sides. And I've long held that that, that B-Sides collection is one of my favorite collections of Prince music i was <laughs> yes, i was so right, excited to get right. that and and some of his b-sides during this period were some of his best music i mean oh, of city feel you up yep. irresistible bitch i mean just all-time great classic prince songs and they were never actually officially released as uh, on an album because they, i do remember in the 80s as a prince fan it's always you know the the hunt for the b-sides because you got to find the single versions of these you know, of these uh, songs to get the b-side you know yep. it's like I had the Let's Go Crazy, uh, I had that on vinyl, I wish I still did, I don't, but I had I had that, that single on you know, had Erotic City and the longer versions of uh, Let's Go Crazy, and I remember trying to hunt them down, and so yeah, when that, that collection came out, it filled in a lot of gaps for me. Always liked uh, both of those songs, uh, La La La, he, he He He, should be noted that that was recorded years before... Uh, Jane's Addiction did caught been caught stealing <laughs> so Prince was actually the first person to have do the dog bark barking dogs as a like a, <laughs> a beat so just uh, you yeah. know just so everyone's aware of that um, and yeah Shaka Delica, I mean you know another Camille track <laughs> and great you know funky groove I, I agree I don't know that they have a place on the album um, only, I mean in part because I think the album's perfect the way it is but yeah, I mean, there is a certain redundancy to Shaka and La 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 He He. Almost feels more like a love, sexy track to me than mm-hmm. uh, having a proper place on Silent Times. So, I, th- I
0: mean, yeah, and that was one, and we'll we'll kind of come back to it. But I, I think La 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 He 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 was meant for the what like the Crystal Ball project or something else before yeah. before it kind of congealed into Silent Times. It's, right, I think. God, I think it was in like the liner notes or, or one of the write-ups in that the hits and the B sides triple disc where whoever was writing that said something like, It sounds like somebody dared Prince to write a song based on the <laughs> stupidest title you could possibly come right. up with La, 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 he, he, he. And that's what it is. It's like a, it's, it's really kind of silly, but I don't know what it is about that song. I think it's like one of the top five songs for the whole album. Like if it, if it had actually made the album, it would be for me. I just, I, I dig that track. Um, Neil, to what you were saying kind of about like the extended versions and how, yeah, they, they don't necessarily belong on the album because you have to trim it in order to, for everything to fit. Um, the one thing that I would mention is the longer version of You Got the Look has mm-hmm. a really cool extended intro that oh, I yeah. like with these funky guitar parts. And, and I, they played that in that, the movie. Exactly. That, that was my thought even yeah. before I remembered that. I was like, this would be perfect for a live performance, you, but it doesn't belong on the album.
1: Yeah, Chris, you know, you touched on this, too. Like, the Hunt for the B-Sides thing was always kind of a weird – there was a, just a weird – like, Prince had this weird – he was like an, an anomaly of something. I remember – do you remember, like, during the Batman soundtrack – Like, Mm -hmm. you know, some of the videos got released on MTV, but like BET would play a five minute, six minute version of the song. And so I remember being like, wait a minute, like trust or bat dance or or party man. Like there's material that I haven't heard yet. Like these, and a lot of it was just extended tracks, you know, with more instrumental, more stuff, dance breaks and stuff. But just knowing that all this stuff was out there just kind of fascinated me. I was like, how much time does he spend in the studio on a particular song? You know, that kind of stuff. I
2: mean, yeah really speaks to the uh, how, how prolific he was is not only did he record like hundreds and hundreds of songs but there was like nine versions of each song yeah,
1: exactly i know what was it remember when when we hunted down the, the computer blue rem- the remixes there was computer yeah. blue then there was computer <laughs> blue extended then there was computer blue 714 which was 7 minutes and 14 minutes and then there was Computer Blue 1429 and you're like going and like the the hallway edition yeah I think I have in my like Prince playlist I
2: think I have like 5 versions of that song yeah exactly yeah
0: Uh, then moving on, the next three discs in the Super Deluxe version uh, comprised of 45 previously unreleased studio tracks, um, and and I as we kind of get into the section, I also kind of want to talk about, and, and you guys can probably speak to this a little bit better, but we've sort of teased at it. The way "Sign of the Times" kind of came together was Prince had these dueling other. Uh, albums or concepts or ideas that kind of fell apart one was this camille project and another one was crystal ball and they didn't work but he ended up taking a lot of the recording sessions and a lot of the material from those uh and and putting it into what became sign of the times anything more specific than that that you guys want to mention
2: yeah i mean um just kind of you know Fill in the blanks there a little bit, you know Because I, I had done some reading about this, and you know, I've always one of the things that was most exciting to me about this release is because of this story of how this album came to be. I mean, this is the third super deluxe edition we've gotten for Prince. They did Purple Rain, they did uh, 1999. Mm-hmm. This is the one. This is the one I was most excited about because of this. So yeah. So what you were saying, Ryan? There's also a third album project that was incorporated the uh, uh, dream, the Dream Factory. Yep. Which, yep. which was. Um, uh, left over from it was something he'd been working on with The Revolution and was abandoned when they broke up in 86 and then you know and some of these tracks if you look at like some of the album configurations for what these three albums were going to be for Dream Factory Camille uh, and then Crystal Ball a lot of the, some of these songs survived into it and made it all the way to Sign of the Times I think Strange Relationship is one um, trying to think what another one was off the top of my head there there were like two or three that survived that, you know, that entire process were re-recorded and reworked, but still, you know, uh, Starfish and Coffee, I think was another one. Um, So yeah, so that, when that fell apart, you know, Prince uh, shelved that. And then yes, the Camille project came up because this is when Prince really started to experiment with the, uh, the pitching up of his voice. And he created this Camille alter ego and there was a whole album for that. He wanted to release that under the pseudonym Camille, not have his name attached to it at all. And of course, Warner Brothers was like, yeah, we're not doing that. And <laughs> and now what's interesting is that what I read is that album actually made it all the way. I mean, all of these were mastered as albums. That's why we have all this music now. And I mean, they got pretty far into the process before they were abandoned. And uh, apparently there were some actual pressings of Camille that, that, that were just, I mean, like nobody knew existed until like three or four years ago and are floating around someplace. Uh, So actual vinyl versions of the Camille album, which would be, I can imagine, you know, how much those are worth. Um, And then you have uh, the project that has the most connective tissue to what, you know, to Sign of the Times is Crystal Ball. And basically Sign of the Times ended up being the two-album version of the three-album version of what crystal ball is supposed to be three albums and warner brothers didn't want to do it and so he just he he streamlined it into two and that became side of the times and i think it's one of the reasons why i think the album is so strong and such a great double album is because it was literally winnowed down from a bigger more sprawling album you know three three album collection and Yeah, so this collection of songs for me is the most exciting part of this whole release because a lot of this stuff, I mean, you know, most notably with the confusingly titled Crystal Ball collection that was released in 98, um, a lot of this stuff has kind of popped up some of it made its way you know into the final version of what side of the times would be some of it showed up like uh you know on soundtracks there's a song called good love that ended up on i think it's the bright lights big city soundtrack i want to say um that eventually appeared on the crystal ball release in 98 not to be confused with what he had planned in in 86 87 two different things right but a lot of the stuff that was, you know, because Crystal Ball, the '98 release, was a lot. It was all vault material, mm-hmm. and a lot of it was from like the first couple of discs from this era. Primarily, it seemed like mostly Dream Factory. There wasn't a whole lot of Camille or uh, Crystal Ball outtakes, other than the title track.
1: The title track, well, yeah, right.
2: Which I will say, since that was officially released in '98, is one of my favorite Prince songs. I adore that song. That is such a cool, sexy, weird. Song and just yeah, I think that's one of his best songs, and that's the first time I heard that was when I really got excited for the idea of what Crystal Ball could have been. So what this what what the 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 unreleased material on this album brings us because it's not complete, it's not everything that was on any of those album projects. It just fills in the gaps. So because I went and I cross checked this with everything else that had been released, so you can now basically create your own versions of those albums because every song that was meant to be on those three albums is now has now been released and I actually created a playlist that is my crystal ball playlist that is the track listing of what was meant to be on that album and I haven't had a chance to listen to it as an album but I I will be doing that uh, you know at my next available opportunity I look forward to it because there's a lot of great 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 material Um, the standout for me Um, hands down is Rebirth of the Flesh, which was intended to be the opening track for Crystal Ball. And that, for me, is like the gem that, as a Prince fan, I look for in the unreleased material, in the B-sides. Just, I think, a classic Prince banger, where I'm just like, this is a great, great song. And it's exciting for me, the idea that that was meant to be the opener for Crystal Ball. And what's weird, too, is like, how that changes the idea of what that album was meant to be as opposed to when he changed it to sign of the times. And while that song is on the original album configuration of crystal ball, it was buried deep in it. Mm. It was like the 10th track or something. And yet, so when he, when he, when he windows this thing down, drops that drops rebirth of the flesh, that is no longer uh, the opening track. And moves Sign the Times and actually makes that the title of the album. I think it's interesting to you know what what the statement Prince is making with what those two, even though most of, as a matter of fact, unless I'm mistaken, the only song that does not appear on the original uh configuration for uh a Crystal Ball that is on Sign the Times is You Got the Look, which I believe was a song that he wrote recorded just for that album. Um, Sign of the Times, and pretty much in the same order, just interspersed with some of these other tracks. Sign of the Times, the double album is entirely on Crystal Ball, other than You Got the Look. And in that order, just like I said, broken up by some other songs. But he opens it up with Rebirth of the Flesh, which sets an entirely different tone and idea for what that is supposed to be, as opposed to the very different sounding Sign of the Times.
1: So let me jump in for a second now. This is, uh, I, I, first of all, I love. I want to add to specifically the things you talked about. I want to talk about the configuration of the three albums, then whittling it down to two and blah, blah, blah. Um, I love the fact that you brought up Rebirth of the Flesh, though, because one, one of the really coolest things that I heard about that was Susan Rogers, the producer of the albums. She said that, that was she, she, Prince never came out and said it to her, but she thought that specifically was to signify that he broke up the revolution that's the way mm-hmm. that she interpreted that song she thought that that was to meant I've got a new band I'm back in charge blah 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 whatever um whether or not that's true it's in who knows but it's yeah that's a banger of a song and that it would feel like yeah. a strong opener kind of thing that's um so there was that I also heard you know like I think it was maybe her or the other producer that this guy that they nicknamed cuz because he was like cousin like for, mm-hmm. for they thought that Prince wanted to, he started, he was so prolific in the studio during this period that the character Camille just came out of Prince being bored of hearing his own voice every day. (laughs) So I I don't know if that's true or not. I love some of the Camille songs that have like a high and a low where it sounds like it's a duet and it's not, it's Prince singing with Prince. You know, there's some of that stuff's cool. Now, the last thing I want to say about specifically in response to what you talked about. So, the Lenny Warneker who was the president of Warner Brothers at the time the guy that was there when they signed Prince um in 78 77 he talked about you know he was the one that he did in his portion portion of the interview where he talked about you know the bringing in other producers because Prince didn't stop recording he worked all night they brought a king size bed into the studio i mean he booked out he booked out studio 3 at Sunset Sound for like 3 months in a row for like 3 straight mm-hmm. months it was his so he moved in there um and he had because uh, Paisley Park, I think, was still being built. I don't think it was functioning yet. Um, but he moved in like drapes, curtains, candles, a bed, like all the stuff, and just basically had a rotating twenty-four hours of of producers that were ready whenever Prince was ready. Get up and record. So, and this is the president of Warner Brothers talking about this stuff. So then he talks about one of the, this. This was my favorite part of this story. Is he says so Prince then finally. Gives them the three albums that are going to be signed at the times or whatever it was, whatever it was going to be called at the time, but it was a three album set and they gave it to him and he listened to it and he talks about, he was like, I was having a real tough time getting through it. He goes, I knew the quality of the songs was there. I knew that it was, it was, this was good stuff, especially coming off the poor response to under the cherry moon and the parade album and stuff. He said, you know, I knew it was there, but it was it was really hard to sit and listen to in a sitting. You couldn't get through three albums. So he said that he talked to a couple people and they wanted, you know, they the, some of the a people at Warner's and some of the, like, all these other people. And everybody basically said, you got to whittle it down. Like, we can't release a three-disc set or a three-album set. And so Lenny was like, okay, well who's, you know, somebody's got to tell him and everybody else was like, you're the president. You tell him, you know, we, we're not going to have control. No way. Everybody was afraid to tell Prince. So Lenny scheduled a meeting through Prince's manager and said, Hey, I need Prince to come out to the studios. You know, I want We're going to have a sit down. We're going to talk to him. And he was like, but do me a favor. Don't tell him that we need him to cut down the album. Let me tell him in person. Let me butter him up and all this stuff. And his manager was like, okay, I won't tell him. So the day before they're supposed to meet, Prince's assistant calls Lenny or the studio, the president, and they're like, "Yeah, Prince Prince needs to talk to you today. He needs you to call him in the studio." And the guy's like, "What? What? Hey, okay." And so then he calls Prince's manager, and this is like little kids playing phone tag. That's the funny thing about <laughs> it. So the president calls Prince's manager, and he's like, "Did you tell him?" And he was like, "I had to. He wanted to know what the meeting was about. Like, I don't, I don't." And the lady's like, "God damn it, you know, all this stuff. <laughs> I was now he's you know, and like yeah, these guys were terrified of Prince, which is funny. <laughs> like so finally, Lenny Warricker calls Prince in the studio, and I guess the note was given to the studio because everybody else said when Prince is recording, do not touch him, do not bother him, do not like you're you're he's on radio silence, except for this one call was allowed to go through. So the lady at, the, at Sunset Sound gets uh, gets the, the call and she's like, okay, hold on. Hold for Prince. <laughs> and then, so he goes, grabs Prince and Lenny's sitting there sweating it out right now. And then Prince gets on the phone and Lenny said that he expected Prince to be like, hey, how are you? What's going on, man? And then let's get into it. Prince doesn't say anything. He picks up the phone. And he goes, so I heard you don't like my album. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what he says to the guy. And the guy's like going... Uh, that's well, no, that's not what I said. I didn't say you know, I didn't say I don't like it. And he starts Long like, "Didn't read? Why do you hate? Why do you hate?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But it's just the, funny that the president of Warner Brothers is literally tiptoeing on eggshells around <laughs> print. It's just awesome. But this guy was like saying, "So no, no, it's just." And then he gives him the whole spiel about why they got to cut it down, they got to trim it down, and it's going to be hard to market it, and it's going to be hard to put all this other stuff. And so he says he's like nervously talking for ten minutes prince doesn't say a word the guy's like just trying to explain to him all the things and what they can do with it and how you know in the 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 budget and all this other crap anyway he's just going on and on and prince doesn't say anything finally there's like dead silence and prince goes i'm gonna fly back to minneapolis tomorrow i'll talk to you later and he hangs up and then the guy's like okay so the next night or that night, this guy calls all of his a and people, all his producers, and everything. They're like, "Okay, look, Prince is mad at us right now, so we got to try and come up with a. Co- we got to try and trim this down ourselves. Let's try and cut this down to a two-album thing." And there were people that wanted it to be a single album, and Lenny at least oh. was like, "There, there's no way." Lenny was like, "There is too much good material on here. We, there's no way. First of all, we'll never get Prince to go along with it. But they were like, second of all, it's too. There's, it's too good. So they were trying to work on it. So they spent all night like brainstorming the next morning uh, Lenny calls Prince again and or calls the manager or the manager and he's like he's like hey so we've got some ideas we need to sit down with Prince Prince said he was going back to Minneapolis Uh, No, this had to be the next day. He was like, Prince said he was flying to Minneapolis. He's going to be there for a couple days. So when he gets back in town, we want to meet with him. And and the guy and the manager was like, what about? And he said, well, we've got some ideas about how we can trim the album down. And they're like, no, Prince did it. And Lenny's like, what? And they're like, oh, yeah, he's on a plane back to L.A. right now. He flew home to Minneapolis, recut the album that is the two-disc album sign of the times himself. And he's flying back right now with the finished copy. And so they were like... Okay, I guess that's it, and that is the sign of the times version that was released. Interesting. Right, well, I have two comments on it. Number one is being terrified is the exact
2: correct response to have a <laughs> prince. Uh, everyone, no matter who you are, should just be terrified of prince. Um, you know, and and yet also aroused, like at the same time. <laughs> right. Well, don't, that's two sides of the same coin for me, buddy. So, <laughs> <laughs> nice. but um, you know, and the interesting thing about that is you know I hate to say it and it's not like I'm siding with the record company but I don't argue against it being the right choice because of how phenomenal and great Side of the Times is I mean like I said I haven't had a chance to listen to the configuration as a whole that would have been the the original release Crystal Ball it's I'm sure it'll be great I mean I like all the different songs on there but it might have been the right decision. I don't know. I mean, I'm glad that ultimately Prince is the one who made the decision and chose it. So it is still a product of his creativity and artistry. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, I mean, think we've,
0: we've all seen in music, especially in films and other media, the artistry that comes out of adversity and, and difficult right, circumstances right. like in terms of like budgets. And we've seen what happens when certain artists and creators get... Unrestrained, unfettered access to everything that they want.
1: Yeah, they never and, want to self-edit.
0: Yeah, and a lot of times it does not go very well. A lot of times it blows up in their faces, or it's not what the the fans want because they don't. Yeah, it's, so or what the studio wanted, thought they they just had a better. Prince was able to incorporate that and make a better
2: product of it. Yeah. Well
1: I think I think what's what's awesome about I I think we're we're all kind of aligned now on the same thing. Like first of all, I can't imagine this album being released any other way now. Like I, right. I I yes, I agree the studio made the right decision to trim it down to two albums. But yes, I love the fact that then Prince constructed the set list, the the album track list the way he wanted it to, based on this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, I God knows what kind of album we would get. Like Ryan, you said this before, it plays like a concert you know that type of thing so the fact that you know Prince probably was very unhappy about the fact that they made him cut stuff out but what he put together is phenomenal so yeah so I'll leave it at that
0: all right going through uh, these discs just sort of very very quickly um, uh, the the tracks on disc for a few of them that stood out uh, the first track it's the 1979 version of I could never take the place of your man um I find it an interesting artifact to listen to um, mm-hmm. but I mean it's I, I would I, it's not it doesn't hold a candle anywhere close to the the album the, the set of the times version that we get. Um, I think that also speaks to just the sound quality of what Prince was able to produce, you know, in, in his early material by the time he got here. And and I know Neil, when we talked a couple of years ago on the other one, you mentioned how some of his very earliest albums, it's hard for you to listen to just because of like the sound quality, you know, what was, what could have been possible, the, the potential some of those songs had if they had just been recorded or mixed at a later date in Prince's career.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mentioned this once before, um, but you know, I heard you know there was a friend of mine that was like a DJ that had Chris. Remember Hector? Remember Hector? Man, man, why (laughs) why you don't like Hector, man?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Why you don't like Hector,
1: man? (laughs) But he was able to access, like, he he got me copies of, and I think I talked about this in a prior podcast, Ryan. So I'm not going to go deep into it, but like certain things, like he was able to get like DJ quality remasters of like Dirty Mind and stuff that brought out they modernized the bass track and the drum like there was something that they were able to do with modern technology to make it sound current and modern mm-hmm. and all of a sudden the album takes on a whole new life now like yeah. a whole new life like you could hear it banging in a club now in a, like in a you know you know in a hip hop movie or something at a club mm-hmm. scene whereas when I listen to the you know some of those and it's through no fault of anybody's own but Prince became a master of the studio the older he got Right, right, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, can I play with you? Features Miles Davis. It's a decent song. And then Crystal Ball. Should we mention that that actual title song is pretty good? Others that you guys liked?
2: Two, you know, there's two different things on this collection. We already kind of touched on like the unreleased, you know, songs for these previous album configurations. And then Ryan, as you mentioned, there's a few alternate versions of some mm-hmm. of these songs mm-hmm. that were like yeah. some of them are you know earlier versions of them. Most notable being uh, I can never take the place of your man. Very interesting, I think, because it's almost like two different songs, because it's two different eras, and that version that we get, I like it. I agree with you, Ryan. I mean, what he ended up doing with it, but the, you know, Sign of the Times version is is light years better. But that song he recorded, I think it was like 79, could have found a place, I think, on that album that, that he released, a yeah. self-titled album. It sounds very much of that time. So I think that, like you said, it's an interesting artifact to compare those two songs, and you can kind of chart the... The evolution of you know that song itself and you know Prince as a musician between those those two different things, we get a couple different versions of uh, Strange Relationship because I think that was also an older track that had evolved and yeah the, I feel the same way uh, about those that you know uh, the they're like artifacts it's like it, they kind of sound the same they're a little different. I don't think anything is really added to it that you know makes me go, oh okay, that's like a better version or than you know what he originally settled on. There's an uh alternate version I think is very interesting of "Bow to Dorothy Parker that is a very simple change where it's the exact same track, but there's a horn line. A horn oh, song, yeah. Yeah, and it completely changes like the feel of the song. Mm-hmm. Like there, you know, that, that the 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 album version, which I I again think is better is, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of more sparse, and, and there's a, I don't know, more of a somber tone to it. And where you add in that horn line, and it kind of adds this, you know, it's jazzier, it's kind of a smoother kind of feel to it. And, I mean, and again, I think that speaks to kind of the artistic genius of Prince that he recognized such a simple tweak because you know, I think it would have been easy just to leave that in there. It's, it's, it's a good song. I mean, with the horn line in there, it just changes yeah, the feel does. of it. And Prince just said, just, and that's the only thing he did. He just lifted that out, and then that was the song. I'm like, that's, that's pretty cool that he, you know, <laughs> he, that he saw to do that, that he had you know, the vision. And then I think the standout alternate version for me, which I touched on before, is that acoustic version of Forever in My Life.
3: There comes a time in every man's life it's tired of fooling around and juggling hearts in a three ring circus someday drive a body down to the ground i never imagined that love would rain on me and make me want to settle down but baby it's true i think i do and i just want to tell you that i
2: I still like the album version, I think, you know, in terms of its place on the album, uh, it, it, it needs to be that. I don't think if you put the acoustic version onto the album in place of it that it works. But I might say that I like the acoustic version better as a song-to-song comparison, because I just love having it stripped down like you get the impression that like Prince just sat down with an acoustic guitar and just started strumming some chords and then just wrote that song. Like just, <laughs> you know, cause that's the the feel it has. And I really like how it just breaks it down to its base components of just like this kind of really simply structured pop song.
1: You know, it's, it's funny. I do like, can I play with you with the um, Miles Davis track? It, you know, it's got kind of that reminds me of baby I'm a star jam or that it's going to be a beautiful night jam, but when you see the, the, the live DVD of it, like all of a sudden now I don't want to listen to the, the, the recording anymore. So that's like, I feel like that's one of those songs that you just gotta, you gotta see it live kind of thing. It takes on just a whole new life. And I've, I've heard stories about that too, which are really funny when we get into the stuff about how Prince was yeah. Prince and Miles Davis that night in the footage that you can see on YouTube or on DVD and stuff like Prince and Miles Davis have a very back and forth kind of uh, rivalry going on, even though they both respect each other, they were both trying to trip up the other person and it's very weird. And the band confirms it, how awkward <laughs> it was on stage. So I'll get to that stuff later, but um, and, and long story short, it was just a little bit of Miles Davis saying you may be the new up and coming buck, but I'm still Miles Davis. And Prince is like, you old man, ain't past your bedtime. And that kind of, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Uh, the, some of the ones that I did like, I liked. Uh, I thought "Witness for the Prosecution" was pretty. The version one was really good. I like "Eggplants." I thought that was a mm-hmm. fun song. <laughs> um, Everybody wants what they don't got. I'm not sure I'm crazy about this song, but I can't hear it and not think of like Elton John or Billy Joel. Like, Can I say yeah.
0: something about that song? Yeah, please. Everybody wants what they got. Like this sounds terrible to say, but it feels to me like it's a sitcom theme. Or oh my god, and dude! bosom Buddies."
1: I literally (laughs) different strokes or something like that no right I was 100% with you I literally I I heard that I was like remember when Billy Joel did the soundtrack to Bosom Buddies I'm like that's what the song sounds like I said, I've said before, I think it was the Coco Boys, which was like the earliest kind of spoken word rap. And I'm like, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's, it. and then of course he would, you know, utilize that a lot um, going forward. I think, I think it's funny that I, th- what was, uh, God, what was the song for Joni Mitchell that he wrote for her? Uh, emotional Pump? I think Mm -hmm. that song was written for Joni Mitchell and they were like, she heard it and she was like, I can't sing this, (laughs) you know, know, listen to the words of that song. And you're going to be like, yeah, what made you think Joni Mitchell was going to record this? Um, so I thought that was funny. Um, cosmic day. I love, I think it's interesting that that was released ahead of the, the, the super deluxe reissue. That was like the lead track being released to radio ahead of time or, to promote it it reminds me of like i can never take the place of your man kind of thing um my favorite song of all of these and i don't know how you guys feel well no it is second favorite i should say second favorite is i need a man the song mm-hmm. that was supposedly written for bonnie rate yeah. um that song just jams it's funky it's I, I, like yeah. Yeah. oh man i i like i can't get enough of it i can't get enough of it i just think that song is fantastic mm. Uh, last thing I'm going to say about these uh, the, this collection is, and part of it is because of a story too. "Power Fantastic," which I always thought was a beautiful song. I always thought that that was really really cool. Um, but they elaborate. They have all the like. This is still the 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 revolution was still recording with them at the time that this was done, um, and. There's, there's Susan Rogers talks about the whole band. Prince wanted to record this live, meaning everybody in the studio in one take together. So, and she was like, okay, so he crammed everybody into, maybe this was in Minnesota. I, actually, this might've been not, I don't think this was in LA, but, um, so he brings everybody in. Everybody's got mics and headphones and he, teach, he tells everybody how he wants it to do it. And there's this long intro that's kind of jazzy and stuff. And he's like, I want it to build and build. And you can hear Prince's audio take as he's directing the band for what he wants them to do. And then he goes, yeah. Never, and everybody fade out. And then Lisa start playing the piano and all this stuff. And he's just like, there's no, it, like his quote on this, you can hear his voice. And he goes, there's no mistakes on this. Just go with what you feel. And we'll try and get the, you know, and it's, it's just awesome. But the best part about the story is so Susan Rogers says that you know she gives every okay and then Prince is going to do his vocal track ta- take at the same time she runs out of headphones There's not enough headphones for everybody there. So she's like going, okay, well, somebody's got to give up their headphones so that Prince can sing. You know, he's got to hear the engineer's mix so he can do it. And um, Prince says, no, don't worry about it. I got this. I'm I'm fine. Whatever. He goes, I don't want to everybody keep your headphones on. Everybody play together in the same room. So he's not even in the vocal booth. He's in her engineer board, like the soundboard room. And he takes a microphone, points it at the back wall and says don't look at me to her <laughs> and she plays the the track through the speakers in there and he sings it live facing the wall not in a vocal booth not with headphones on nothing and she said she got chills and it was a and that's the version that they cut Like that was the vocal take that made the the album. And it was the most unorthodox, unprofessional way of singing a song. And when you listen to it now, now, for those of you that haven't heard it, if you go back and listen to that song, it's one hell of a vocal performance. It's, it's, it's challenging. It's emotional. It's high and low and all, and it's there. There's soft parts to the music where it's just the vocals and it's It blows my mind that that was his one take and he did it like just standing in a corner. Like I just – so that – I just had to draw attention to that because that's one of the most amazing Prince recording stories I've heard.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty cool. If I could just add something, I, I I think maybe you guys would both agree with me that I would watch the shit out of a Prince sitcom starring <laughs> him. Recorded in the late 80s, three camera, live in front of a studio audience. That's the theme. Uh that that would be amazing to watch that. So I'm hoping maybe that was what Prince was intending with that. It just never got off the ground. <laughs> you know, there there were a couple other tracks on here I wanted to touch on briefly. I mean, there's so much material uh that were standouts for me. I mean, we did mention or I mentioned um Rebirth of the Flesh is probably <laughs> my my favorite. Um there was you know, a couple other ones that I really enjoyed that uh some I had heard before like bootleg versions, some I hadn't. Um, there's like train, which I, <laughs> I really like. And there's also um yeah, Cosmic Day. You mentioned that, Neil, yeah. which I, yeah. I really I really like too. A place in heaven I enjoyed, wonderful day. And some of these were, were remnants from the Dream Factory uh sessions, so it's uh this is like more of the revolution. I think Prince reworked them, but this yeah. is stuff he 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 wrote and and developed with
1: you know like with Wendy and Lisa. Also, like some uh, of the yeah. instrumental interludes too. Like, there's a couple like one yeah, minute yeah. pieces. Like, there are, like Visions is one, and then mm-hmm. there's another yes, like Visions slow jazz guitar. Like, I forgot what the guitar part was. There's a one minute slow jazzy guitar track. I yeah, can't I remember. Think
2: I think, I think oh, that's, right. that's Colors. That one, colors. Color, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah I like those that, I thought those were yeah. really cool. Well, Visions, if I if I recall correctly, was meant always meant to be the opening track for uh Dream Factory. Wow. And All My Dreams, I think, is a really great song. Very kind of a I mean, you, you can really feel Lisa and Wendy's fingerprints on that song. Yeah. That was a Dream Factory song. Um, but in terms of like, yeah, I agree with you with I Need a Man, man, that's that's a great song. And I don't know what Bonnie Wright was thinking. <laughs> I recorded it. yeah. It's just got a great little horn line. You know, and uh, yeah, I love the story about Power Fantastic, and I know that it had been a B side, it had been previously released. Right, I've heard it before you. This is like that longer, it has that long intro where it's just yep. like him, like kind of setting yep. things up, yep. which I think is fantastic. Um, I really liked, uh, because it's, it's like one of those classic Prince long form, you know, funk jams is that soul uh, psychedelic side.
0: Psychedelic side. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: That's, that's, that's like, a that it, yeah, it's
0: like a 12 yeah. minute long groovy one. But I, yeah, I do yeah know. it's just,
2: it's just, you know, like where Prince just fixates on that one groove and just repeats it for like 10 minutes. <laughs> and, 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 but it's good. It works. Um, the ball, I think, is a cool song. That was also another uh, track that was meant to be on Crystal Ball, and actually, and I, you know, and I listened to it. I thought I heard the DNA of another song. Uh, it's a song called I Know from uh, which I believe is the opening track for Love Sexy, um, and yeah. So he actually did rework that for that. And uh, there's a couple other tracks. You know, yeah, Coco Boys is pretty good. Yeah, I'm not gonna go through the whole thing, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, there's there's a lot of really good stuff on here. I don't think because I love the uh, the way the album is now. I think "Sign of the Times" is a perfect album. There's nothing on here I would have put, that I would added to the album. I mean, I think Prince made the right choice in what he ended up releasing. But great. these are all great. Like for me, it's like you know, it, it's like you had this book. With missing pages and chapters, and now it's all filled in, and you you can kind of reconstruct these other ideas and concepts he had. So it's like you know, it's like it's it's like you know, history basically. It's like this whole you have to complete development of. These album projects and what they would become, and that's 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 what I think is really cool about all this music.
0: The one exception to that is I think the song "Emotional Pump" his version. Um, I think it's really really good, and I could see that as an album cut or maybe a B side. Like considering some of the B sides were just other album songs. Yeah. Um, like I, I think "Emotional Pump" could have been a B side to one of those other things. Um, and I was surprised that it hadn't been released, and I hadn't heard it until now. Because uh, I, I think it was kind of that good and had that kind of potential, um, but you're right. I agree. There, there's a bunch of other stuff, in then like Cosmic Day, Walking Under Glory, like you mentioned. I Need a Man mm-hmm. is really good. Promise to Be True. Um, I think. I think probably Disc Six of like the thing is maybe I think is kind of like the strongest in terms of just like um, I don't know. I mean, there's just a lot of there's a lot of groove songs in there that like you could just play in the background if you're doing something else um, and just kind of you know have that going on. No, no. on now uh the last two discs uh are from a live concert from june 20th 1987 in utrecht the netherlands um there's also a dvd that accompanies the super deluxe version with a different show live from paisley park uh on december 31st 1987 and that disc was also at least it had been for a while it was on youtube i'm not sure if it's still there but it was it was released on YouTube, where you can get the DVD. Uh, yeah, that was a Paisley Park performance, December thirty first, which will be thirty three years before you should be hearing this episode if I get it edited on time.
4: Man, <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, you, knew, you were going to kind of talk about the the transition of the band from leaving the Revolution, kind of building up this this new band. Um, yeah. How do you think it came together for these?
1: Yeah, well, I think I'm not, I you know, obviously, the, we've there's so much information to the Divulge right here in this this podcast. You know, we could go on for hours. I don't want to elaborate too much on on this, and for our listeners, but it is it is important to kind of touch on the fact that this was uh, part of the thing that. Like Chris mentioned before, part of the the album chronologies that became this was because there was a changing band. And I mentioned this at the beginning that I wasn't really familiar with it at the time, didn't really get it um, as an adult. And as I became a musician, I do get it now. So the revolution, which everybody knows and loves, was fantastic. And we all know from I, I talked about this at the beginning, if you've watched the Baby I'm a Star, I Would Die for You live Purple Rain tour video that MTV played in rotation which is about 20 minutes long you see Prince as a band leader being at his ultimate like being at the top of his game as as a band leader with hand signals and music and verbal cues and stuff and putting his band through the paces you see it and on top of that to, you know, to the other side of the coin is the band is as tightly rehearsed as any live band I've ever seen for a 20 minute jam to never miss a beat. Like there's a moment where Prince calls out 25 y'all and then you hear the band go boom, 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 everybody 25 times, not one person loses track of count. And then after the 25th, it's silence. That type of stuff would be real easy for one person to screw up and they don't. So. I mentioned that because that's how tight the revolution was. Now, what we also saw in that live video was the introduction of a bunch of new musicians that came in. The revolution was only, what, five people? I think six people, maybe, mm-hmm. during the Purple Ra- 1999 Purple Rain. And then all of a sudden, there's about 12 people, 15 people on right. stage during this concert. You know, there was additional guitarists. There were horns. Horn players. There were uh, dancers. You know, Prince brought mm-hmm. Brother Brooks and you know his. And, his yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so he had all these people, and they had choreographed a lot of stuff. Well, during this period of time, Prince felt like he had kind of outgrown the revolution after a certain point, and maybe. You know, there is some speculation that it could have had to do with uh, the poor response to uh, the albums that came after Purple Rain, like Parade and and uh, Around the World in the Day. Around the World in the Day, yeah. Um, some people said it could possibly be a result of that, or it could possibly be that Prince's un- never ending drive to top himself once you have the heights of Purple Rain, he was on to the next thing, which is very possible. So there was never like a strong, weird animosity or disgruntledness. Well, Maybe if you ask certain people, there would be. But anyway, so Prince decided he, w- he wanted to go a new direction. He wanted to incorporate horns. He wanted to incorporate jazz. He, re- he had mentioned at the time remembering seeing James Brown as a kid. And uh, an interviewer said something like, you know, so seeing James Brown must have left a big impact on you. And, and Prince said, oh, yeah, he had the hottest female dancers I've ever seen. And That was that was what he remembers about seeing the James Brown show. So I'm like, OK, that's total prints. But so he starts bringing in during the course of the next couple albums, he starts bringing in these other musicians and he's auditioning people and bringing them in. There's uh, Atlanta Bliss and Eric Leeds are, are the Miko Weaver, like all these guys that are now these jazz accomplished jazz musicians. And then you've got the people in the revolution that are kind of getting a little resentful, a little jealous, like Prince has new toys, new shiny toys, so to speak. So, Chris, you had mentioned, you know, the Dream Factory sessions were very, very heavily written by Wendy, Lisa and Prince together. They had a lot to do with those albums. And then Prince just kind of phased it out. And... To put the icing on the cake, at this time too, Prince also had, was now breaking up with uh, Wendy's twin sister. I,
0: I was I was going to bring that up because as you were describing it, I was like, that seems like it should have been a factor in the dissolution of the of these relationships. The fact that he's dating the younger sister of one of the bandmates and, and chief songwriters, yeah.
1: Was she was she a twin? I thought she was a twin. Was are they she not? I think, there's there's you know? yeah, I, think I think they're twins. I think they're twins, twins.
0: too. Oh, are they? Okay. For some reason, yeah. yeah. I thought she yeah. was like the kid
2: sister. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> she might uh, she might have been born a few minutes later.
1: Yeah, so maybe we're both right. We'll go with that. There you go. Okay. Right, let's go with that. Right. Yeah. but Anyway. So it like all these factors on top. And I think that that probably Ryan was just the icing on the cake, you know, at that point, then it became really awkward to live with the sister of your band member or, or to fire your band member and then date the sister. It, like, I think it just became a point where Prince was just like, okay, I'm on. So he did have, you know, after recording a lot of the dream factory and, but wanting to go this new direction and really liking this new sound he had with all these jazz players and horns and stuff. Um, He brought everybody in and said, okay, you know, I'm breaking up the band. I'm, you know, that's it. And he kind of, you know, there were a couple people that he just flat outright fired. And then there was, I think, I think Brown Mark and Dr. Fink were given an offer to continue to play with them. They weren't outright fired. Brown Mark said something like, no, you know, I don't want to anymore. I'm done. I've had it, you know, especially because he wasn't getting any songwriting credits or not getting as much money as he wanted and whatnot. So he just said, he's out. And Prince was like, cool. I respect, I respect that, you know, whatever. Dr. Fink stayed in for a little while with the new band, which, which would eventually become the new power generation. But the reason I, I reference all of this backstory now is to come back to these live, live concerts. Um, when you see the movie, uh, sign of the times, or when you see, when you listen to the, uh, you know, the live concerts or the the DVD, when you watch the DVD of this stuff, you see this whole new band, which is just absolutely every bit as tight and well rehearsed as the others, as the revolution was, but it's just a new band. It's a new sound. And I, I don't think for what Prince wanted to accomplish in this next chapter of his life, the revolution wasn't the right band for that sound. So I get, you know and i'm sure i'm sure i mean they've all agreed to talk about this stuff so it's not like anybody's still harboring grudges and things like that they've all spoken about this transition period and prince was always evolving his sound so that's that's just the way he was um one really cool story about when i talk about how well rehearsed the band was and you can see it specifically in stuff like it's a, it's going to be a beautiful night like the the, the 20 minute closing of just a jam session. And I love one of my favorite parts of the DVD, Ryan. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this is when Prince comes over and takes over drums from Sheila E and mm-hmm. she comes down and then sings and Prince is playing the drums for a, a minute and then she goes back and then he switches over and like he's banging the kick drum up with his foot while she comes in and takes the seat. And then all, and they never miss a beat. It's like the drums never stop. It's just awesome stuff. Um, uh, But so this one story, Dr. Fink was telling a story about, or no, I think it was, who was was the new guitar player? Was that Eric Leeds or was that Miko Weaver? One of those two guys. He was saying that when the very first night of the Sign of the Times tour, which I believe, Chris, you can probably tell, I think that only toured in Europe. I don't know if they actually toured in America for that album. I do not know off the top of my head. Uh, okay, I th- for some reason, I feel like in the in the podcast they mentioned something like Prince was mad and didn't want a to tour in America. Well, where
2: where was that New Year's Eve concert? one. Well, that was that was that a that was single show. Part.
1: Yeah, but that was just a single show. You oh, know, right, 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 right. Yeah. That wasn't part of the tour yeah. officially. Yeah, okay. right. Yeah, it wasn't part of the tour at all. I think that I think the tour. I think it was also he like he didn't want to tour because he wanted to promote the movie in America or something, right, right. something like that. Anyway, so the fir- the very first show after these guys were rehearsing like motherfuckers and one of them even says like Prince has a quote where he tells everybody like he's like, get your notebooks out. This is what we're going to do. We're going to be soldiers. We're going to take this on. He's like, if you're not, if you're not a God at what you do, you will be when I'm done with you. And he like gave these guys like, this is their pep talk, which basically scared the shit out of all of them. And he was like, you know, if you have questions, ask, if you, if you need to take notes, write notes, if you need to leave things on the floor in front of you, leave them on the floor in front of you. He goes, but there will be no mistakes. And then he went in and they rehearsed and they rehearsed like madmen for this tour. So then fast forward to the opening night of the show and right before they're about to go on stage, uh, I want to say like, Eric Leeds, I think grabs him and says, Hey man, good luck tonight. And Prince looks at him and like, just like, like stares at him with like the, the look of death. And he looks at him and he's like, what do you mean? Good luck. And he's like, well, I just mean like, have a great show and everything like that. He goes, that has nothing to do with luck. <laughs> he, said, he said, are you, he goes, are you not ready for this? And the guy's like, Oh, I'm ready. And he goes, have we not rehearsed like until your fingers bleed? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. He goes, then, there, and luck has nothing to do with it. He goes, let's go out there and let's kill it. And all this and this guy was like, I. He was like, I don't think I talk to Prince again the rest of the tour.
4: <laughs> and <he was> like, <laughs>
1: but, but that kind of stuff. But so it's you know. then it's just these, these just you know these Prince as a band leader, like that's the one thing. Oh, and he he also referenced at one point too. It was like so he Prince would rehearse with the band for three hours. And then when everybody was exhausted and done and be like, okay, now let's go home. And they'd be like, what's Prince going to do? Oh, then Prince is going to rehearse by himself for another three hours. Like he rehearsed with the band and then rehearsed his dancing and his choreography and all this stuff separate. So this is just, this is the way this guy works. So I just want to, you know, to come full circle as you guys, as we talk about this live stuff and the live versions of the songs and all this stuff, you gotta, you gotta give kudos to how good the band was and how hard he pushed them.
3: I'm gonna show you what to do. Put your foot down on the two. Jump up on the one. May you have fun.
2: Yeah, you know, as we dive into this, the, the live material and you know, the power of Prince, like as you pointed out, Neil, as a band leader, as a performer. I mean, obviously, it's. I mean, it, it, he he has very few rivals in yeah. that department. Uh, but yeah, during this era in particular, I, I you know, you think about the bands that Prince has had. Revolution <laughs> obviously be the most famous. The most longstanding one was the New Power Generation. They were around pretty much up until he died. I mean, yeah. I think at the end. He was working with Third Eye Girl, but they weren't officially his band. Right. And he was kind of doing his own thing, but they were still around. Like, like when he would, you know, earlier albums before, like his, like his last three, when he was still recording in the studio, he, he he still used them. Mm-hmm. So this is an interesting band because they weren't around very long. They were only around. They recorded, I mean, two albums officially. I guess three, if you want to count the Black album, but it was, it was, it was 87, 88. And then yeah. by the time you get to 89 for the Batman soundtrack – Prince is in the studio. He did that all on his own. Yep. 1990s Graffiti Bridge was New Power Generation before they were officially called New Power Generation and then Diamonds and Pearls, New Power Generation. Yeah, right? So, And he never named this band. There was never a name for this band. So I thought that was interesting. In a way, I mean, no disrespect to the revolution, I feel like this, this might be my favorite Prince band because it was, I mean, first of all, it marked that really big evolutionary step in his sound. I mean, yeah. the sound expanded; it broadened. He brought in the horn section, and it became, you know, a lot funkier and jazzier, and 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 just it was just a richer sound, obviously, yeah. because there was like twice as many people in the bands. And you know, it's kind of an amalgamation, I think, of the two bands that bookended. It's got like the funk and the precision of the Revolution, but it's got kind of that jazzier, freeform, you know, the, the you know, because I I, I was thought that. You know, I, I, New Power Generation was a fine band, but it, yeah, whereas I think this band, because the DNA is similar in terms of they both had horn sections and they both kind of had similar sounds. This is a lot. This is a funk band. Yes. You know, this, this Sign of the yes. Times era band was a funk band <laughs> and New Power Generation was, it always felt jazzier
1: to me and
2: not always the best version of what that means, I think. <laughs>
1: Yeah I think I think you're right my my impression of like I always thought the new new power generation might have been the most like maybe the least necessary for a studio band because i felt like at that point prince could do everything by himself electronically but he needed a band but he needed a band to play so i would agree with where where the revolution was like a rock band and a new wave band from the from the early 80s and they fulfilled that role perfectly this yeah i would agree with what you said i think that this 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 brought elements of both sides and it bridged the gap exactly
2: and like you know where you know like i said where i think that the you know the revolution kind of created this this kind of minimalistic, obviously very electronic, colder, sparsely populated soundscape. That mm-hmm. uh, you know you had this much more kind of lush, richer, full sound because of all the added instrumentation with this band. And then, as Ryan pointed out, then there's Kat. and <laughs> yeah, right. I Never truly understood what her role was in the band. I mean, she danced, she rapped, and she took part in the little you know the, the little narrative. Uh, skits in the movie. She drummed occasionally. But- like- she drummed occasionally. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. I would. You know, I mean, she probably play, play tambourine, but it's it's kind of like you know. I mean, this was the closest I think Prince got to you know the. Uh, the Parliament Funkadelic I mean it was it was a true funk and where you literally had members on stage during a live performance and you had no idea what they were doing there sure there was just some guy in a full Indian headdress and a wedding dress just standing there <laughs> dancing and like is this guy in the yeah. band why, why is he there and he had like three or four people on stage with him that were just that where it was like there's that dude that wore the fur hat and I, I'm like <laughs> did he play an instrument did he say I don't know yeah brother but, Brooks <laughs> yeah, yeah brother Brooks I'm like I love that guy It was great so so, um, and yeah, and how that relates to the sound of that time and these live performances is, again, what I think is really, you know, one of the cool things I think about listening to the live performances of this era, um, you know, because I, I watched that 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 uh, New Year's Eve show when it was released on YouTube. Of course, I've seen the the movie, which is hard to call the movie. You know, like you were saying in the opening, Ryan. I mean, is it a concert film? Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it does feel like a stage. Play. I mean, there is live performances in it, but it does feel more like a stage play. Like I think you, you hit the nail on the head with that. But then there's also obviously the live versions that we hear, uh, you know, in the two uh, discs um, on on this release. And then I have also heard um, I think Neil, I think we got these from Hector. There's uh I, there's he, he hey, man, why us you these. Like Hector? man, I don't know. I don't know, that dude's got some problems. <laughs> but there there was uh like, it was like a lot of material where it was the rehearsal session.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh god day. yeah.
2: And obviously you hear the music from this album, and you know it's like it's cool to hear like these different, you know, like when you talk about Housequake, how that kind of has a different feel in the live version and more energetic. You don't have the pitched up vocals. I really like hearing what Prince does with his older songs. Yep. And I mean, there are songs, you know, in particular kiss and when doves cry, they're like different songs. Yeah. Like what he does, like he adds, you know, I mean, obviously one of the signature aspects of when doves cry, is you know just how minimalistic it is uh-huh. and, and, <laughs> sure. and, and 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 this with this band in this era like i mean it's like he's bringing in horn lines and like the, the you know he still kind of maintains the minimalism during you know the the verses but the chorus is like 19 instruments and you know there's horns and there's everything else and and then he adds like this horn line into Kiss that's like it I feel like it's a new piece of like music that didn't exist in the original composition. Right. And right. it's it's really cool to hear these jazzier funkier versions of these older songs and again speaks to I mean the easiest thing for Prince to do is just like hey we'll just gonna are we're going to you know dust this chestnut off and play 1999 just like a, a no no he he basically rearranged it probably had to, you know, these guys had to learn a new version of this song that they probably oh, already yeah. knew uh, on top of the other 58 songs that they had to, you know, so <laughs> it's that, that to me is is speaks to his power as a performer and an artist that it wasn't just about pushing forward with new music and new ideas. He would go back and, and reincorporate older songs and older pieces of music into this new idea that he had. Mm. And that's one of the real uh, big pleasures that I got out of listening to all that.
3: de
0: Yeah, the the, uh, the DVD video version, or if I hope it is still available on YouTube, because I would love for our listeners to be able to go and check it out really quick. Uh, just the, the version of It's Gonna Be a Beautiful Night is a medley that is over half an hour long.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> it's
2: <laughs> That's just crazy. Yeah.
0: Um, I, I did re- look up really quickly to confirm that. Yeah, you guys are right that Wendy and Susanna Melvoin were twins. Uh, I don't know which one is older, but I'll I'll go with my version. Um, I I, actually, <laughs> I I knew that they had the same name, but it never even occurred to me that Jonathan Melvoin was their brother, the uh, the touring yeah. keyboardist with the yep. Pumpkins who died. Uh, when, yeah. Oh wow! In 1996, when he was with uh, Jimmy, when they kicked Jimmy out because of that whole overdose thing, but yeah. I knew they had the same names, but it never even occurred to me that they might have been related,
1: but yeah. Yeah, we'll do a podcast on him.
0: Um, but yeah, to, to what I was saying about, you know, dating Wendy's sister, I think mean, the fact that they were twins, I think that makes it even stranger.
1: Strange relationship.
2: Um. So, uh, gosh. Oh, I, that's that's one of the songs, Neil. I just got that. That's a good job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, Chris, like you were saying, like in these live versions, I have I'd like I love the the back to back of Housequake and then Girls and Boys on like yeah. that was I was like, right. that's really cool. And yeah. then even in the in the DVD, you know, just Dustin, like the cool, you know, I think what it, he brings in, like Jackie off, I think is one like, mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. like there's just something really cool about I mean god this poor band. I mean as a, at a certain point you you must think it must be a blessing to be a new person in the band so you don't have to unlearn the way you've always played it first right. when he decides to change it. Because a lot of these things Ryan, we've talked you know Billy Corgan does that a lot with like Silver sure, fucking yeah, clothes. Yeah. you know he's yeah. completely reworks that every tour. But oh, imagine the man-
0: butterfly wings one of the right. most popular songs from Melancholy he completely rearranged that song for the following tour.
1: Yeah exactly. <laughs> so some of these band members got to be just like like you know like don't get too comfortable memorizing a song don't you know you'll never you'll never go on autopilot when he's playing as a matter of fact oh i'm, I'm i wanted to mention this one one quick thing too i talked about this before with miles davis so the guys in the band were talking about how Prince was super excited that Miles Davis was going to jam with them and everybody was excited. Now, remember, at this point, all the people in the band are jazz people, so mm-hmm. they're super excited about it, even more so than Prince. Prince looked at it like a competition. He's like, yeah, I got, I got Miles Davis to come and play with us, and it's going to be great. He's like, but I'm going I'm I'm to test, test his metal. I'm going to p- kind of put him through the ringer. And they're all like going, you're going to what? Like what, that's Miles Davis. And he's like, well, let's see if he's as good as he, if, if he can keep up, there won't be a problem. And so they're doing that. Like this is during the, this is what they're saying backstage stuff. Then when you watch the DVD, there's like a, there's a moment where Miles Davis is doing a solo. The band's kind of broken down and he's just kind of trumpeting and stuff. And then Prince turns around he puts his hand signal up and brings his hand down. Like it's supposed to be a cue for something. Not a single person in the band did anything. And then you hear, you can audibly hear Prince go, Hey, <laughs> like that, in the concert. And everybody's like, Oh, yeah, shit. We were just watching Miles Davis. We got to remember who's paying our checks. <laughs> so wow. it, it was, but it's all awesome. now I've seen that clip and I'm just like, Oh my God, dude. Yeah, they all missed the cue. <laughs> it was like, because <laughs> Miles Davis is going. But, you know, it was, it, that's just, I love the fact that Prince got Miles Davis to play with him. And the whole time he's thinking, I'm going to show him whose boss? like, that's just, that's, oh my God, that's so classic. Like, like I could see it. He literally wanted to be like, yeah, I want to show everybody I'm better than you. Kind of like, kind of like, What he did at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when he took over the George Harrison, (laughs) like I mean, it was there was no there was no No. tribute there to George Harrison. There was I'm going to show everybody I'm better than you.
0: Yeah, no, Tom Petty, I'll tell you when the song is over.
2: (laughs) Exactly, Exactly. and and the song is over when I throw my guitar in the air and it never comes down.
1: Exactly, (laughs) like George Harrison's kid, I'm going to let you know why I'm better than your dad.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, Neil, to bring the whole thing full full circle, I think the argument can be made that
1: Prince was the Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Prince Prince is uh, Prince is the walking embodiment of Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame speech when he basically told everybody when he's being honored with the greatest gift in basketball history one can aspire to, being inducted to the Hall of Fame, Jordan is telling everybody, Fuck you, I could still play, I'm better than all of you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah. And and when you see that type of attitude, that type of showmanship that the drive the the mm-hmm. obsessive commitment to as you were saying the rehe- the three hour rehearsals and yep. then just a, a three hours of solo yes, rehearsal. Or or yeah, yeah. flying halfway across the country to write and record a new song in six yep. hours and then flying back to the concert. Things right. like that. I mean it's it's not unfathomable to see how the trajectory of that Lifestyle would lead to an early demise, unfortunately, which is uh, really, really it's, tragic.
2: But it's almost amazing that I mean, he made it as far as he did. He made it as far <laughs> as he did. I yep. mean, because what it's, that guy, I mean, you know, they, you know, they say you know, you leave it all out on the floor, you leave it all out on the stage. I mean, the yeah. day where they did it, it was Prince. Yeah. I mean, he gave he gave his life for yeah. his art for for his performance. I mean, that's it killed him. <sighs>
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we've, I think we've, we've touched, it It is very interesting because the last couple of podcasts we've all done together have been, I don't know, it's probably, it's accidental or just coincidence, but they've been about these like savants kind of thing. You know, we've, we've talked about Michael Jordan. We've talked about Eddie Van Halen. We've talked, you know, Prince falls into that category. It's like, I, I, I'm glad I lived in the lifetime of these people. You know, like this is, this is something that we, like, you know whether or not you're even a Prince fan, you know anybody listening to this stuff when you when you the, with the stuff that we've given and the stuff that's out there and this like there is never going to be something like him again. It is no. it's it's just it's it's he's not even it's almost not even human. There's something he's on he's operating on a whole nother plane than anything we've ever witnessed, and I'm just happy that we just get to sit back and take it all in. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I think uh, we'll we'll give our our final recommendations for this uh, the super deluxe version. Um, I, I Chris, you mentioned that this was one that you were really looking forward to this expanded edition because I I've heard the the Purple Rain deluxe version that had you know extra discs with all that material. Right. And I thought it was fine, but kind of going back to one of the things that we said about them, I don't know that anything that I heard on that version really enhanced my love and my adoration for Purple Rain. Yeah, you know um, it's
2: funny. It's is of the three that were released, that is far and away my least favorite. I, I don't think there's a <laughs> whole. Lo- I just don't think there's a whole lot of interesting material that hadn't been released.
0: Yeah, yeah. So getting this version, which with all of this new stuff, and I think this experience of listening to the whole version, all of the unreleased material, the B-sides, definitely the live content and the live materials. And, and even like when the day that this came out, this, uh, the deluxe version came, dropped the day after my birthday. But I remember, uh, that night, like I, I primed myself to listen to this by watching the video the live concert on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I watched that cool. first before I listened to this as my sort of prep for it. Um, and that just totally put me back in, in the mindset. So, um, yeah, this is just a, a huge, uh, high recommendation for this album, and this version uh, for Prince completists or anybody who wants to do a deep dive on all of this material. I mean, whether whether you get it the uh, a physical copy on vinyl or on on disc, you can also stream it, so you can hear all of this stuff. Um, highest, highest recommendation. This is just great stuff. Uh, before we go, you guys, final any other final thoughts or recommendations or, or things that you want to mention before we go?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, I, this is probably the greatest eight-disc super deluxe version of, of material I've ever had like I don't I don't, think, I don't I don't think I've ever I don't think I've gotten a better eight disc collection of special outtakes and stuff before. No, I'm just kidding. I've um, never
0: lived. No. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I'm joking. This is yeah, Ryan, yeah, I, I don't have anything more to say than what you just did. I mean, I think you know, the night that this was released, I think I was I think I was a little overwhelmed at first feeling like wow, this might be too much content. You know, like I don't I kind of yeah. felt like this is going to, you know, it kind of, it was intimidating, I guess might be the right word for it. It was intimidating, but over the course of, you know, time, just sporadically, I got into it and I got into it and I would listen to the stuff that I hadn't heard before. And then just in small bits. And now I'm very familiar with all of it. I'm pretty familiar with all of it. Now it plays like, like, kind of chris had said which is i can hear the elements of where these would have fallen naturally if given his druthers kind of thing and there's a lot of good stuff and as much as as much as you know to piggyback or to bookend what i said at the very beginning that the original sign of the times two album set is the best thing i've ever heard prince do um it's amazing with this many outtakes They're not far behind, you know, like there's a lot of this stuff that I could be like, you know, I don't, I wouldn't replace anything on the album, but I'm listening to this stuff going, wow, this is all good stuff too. Like there's not a whole lot of drop-offs. So not only was he prolific, he was prolific in a, in a, in a, at a high level, you know, there's, there's, there's not a whole lot. It's like one thing to put out two albums worth of stuff and then just have a bunch of crap that there's a reason it got left off the album. This isn't that collection. So... (laughs)
2: Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent agree. Uh, you yeah, know, sign off on, on on what both of you guys said of the three super deluxe editions we've had released, as we mentioned earlier, it's purple rain, 1999, and this one, um, hands down, this is the best one. And I think a big part of that is, uh, the purple rain, uh, and 1999 ones are, I mean, they, they're, they're, there's, you know, there's good outtakes, but they feel like outtakes. They feel like, this was a singular vision. This was a, a a single project Prince was working on, and these are the things that didn't make the cut. And you listen to it and go, it's a good song, but yeah, it didn't have a place on the album. Yeah. Whereas to your point, Neil, I think there is stuff on this, the, the unreleased material that is, you know, shoulder to shoulder with the stuff that's on the album <laughs> yeah. in terms of quality. It's great, great stuff. And a big part of that, like we discussed, is the fact that this was – you know, for me, this is more of an historical document. This is like a yeah, it charts yeah. it charts a period of Prince's, you know, uh, career in which you know he had multiple projects he's working on and how they evolved and how they coalesced and became this final version. <laughs> so that to me makes it a lot more interesting. And I mean, you know, there's basically multiple albums in here that are different from Sign of the Times that include some of the same music, but you pull them apart and reconstruct them. And it's like you can get two, you can get four albums. And that's what I love about it. And I I would say in terms of recommendation, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I I reemphasize that Sign of the Times is Prince's singular undisputed masterpiece above other masterpieces that he recorded and I think if anyone is going to I, I think it's the it, I think it's a good entry point for if you're not that familiar with the music of Prince and you want to get a, a real good sampling of what he had to offer uh, in both accessible accessibility and more challenging stuff is sign the Times is the place to start um, I mean purple rain 1999 are the easy entry points, I think, but it doesn't give you the full scope of what this guy could do. And you, you don't get that till you get to sign of the times. And it's inarguably, I think his creative peak, I think, yes. you know, he obviously was trying to top purple rain and, and, you know, the, the, the phenomenal, unbelievable success of that, you know, I don't know that it, I don't think it haunted him, but I mean, it was something that he, you know, he, he was competitive. Like you said, Neil, he was yep. competing with yep. himself. Right. Think and so. and he got there with Sign of the Times. And that was the best Prince ever got. And he released a lot of great music after that, you know, throughout his career, all the way up to the end. And but I mean, it would be unfair to expect it to ever reach the heights of where he got at this point in his career. And yeah, it's a towering monumental achievement in both music and art.
1: Yeah. And on the, you know, it, the last thing I'll add, and then Ryan jump in. Um, I think, you know, all the stuff that I've talked about before, you know, Prince being, you know, the preeminent guitar player, musician, virtuoso, all these instruments, band leader, you know, workaholic, all this other stuff that makes Prince Prince at the end of the day this collection would be nothing if it wasn't for the songs and these right. these are fantastically written songs they are fantastic pieces of music fantastic lyrics that coexist in like in like the perfect merging of all facets of creativity
0: i don't know if there's anything else that i need to add other than uh, going back to one of the uh, one of the unreleased tracks that you mentioned Prince has a song called Eggplant.
2: (laughs) Yes, he does. Which I I think is fair to say he predicted what that would come to mean in the the Emoji Age. I think Prince was once again...
1: Oh my God, he did. Once
2: again, decades ahead of anyone else.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, in a perfect world, in hindsight, had he ever released Starfish and Coffee as a single, I think Eggplant should have been the (laughs) B-side. Agreed. Those two would have gone well together. (laughs) Starfish and pee Starfish and pee
2: <laughs> And that's the podcast, folks. We'll see you next week.
1: <laughs> All
0: right. Fire and Water Records is a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, as well as Facebook and Twitter. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. You can also support the show by going to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a nice five star review. Every review for Fire and Water Records helps push this podcast to a wider and wider audience. All music clips and quoted lyrics are used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening and have a very sexy new year.
3: Not to ride, but I-